Hello, and welcome to episode 20 fucking 2 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm your host, Damien Hatchett Heath, and I'm joined by my loyal partner in crime, Luke the Killer Kane. Luke, how the fuck are you? Well, I'm sweating a little here in the studio, you know, roasting, boiling, baking, sweltering. It's like a sauna, furnace. You can fry an egg on my stomach. Well, that's great to hear. This month, we're trying our best to relax poolside and enjoy the scorching summer sun while we discuss Jonathan Glazer's directorial debut, the 2000 British crime film Sexy Beast. So glad you slipped out of the accent. What's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst scenario? He's going to come here. Ask me. I'm going to say no. Do the job. No, Tom. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. I can't. You can. I can't. Don't do this. Do what? What am I doing? This. This? This what? I know a bloke who knows a bloke who knows a bloke. Now, you know this bloke. Do I? This is a bloke you know wants me to put a team together. Hey, strong, good boys. Gotta be good boys. Look dumb. Look dumb? It's like this. Like what? I'd be useless. Useless? I would be. In what way? In every fucking way. Why are you swearing? I'm not swearing. You think you just make your dance, leave the table, lie on your pool like a fat blob laughing at me? Do you think I'm gonna have that? Do it. I'm retired. Do you think I'm stupid? Some twat. I'm not really up to it. Is your middle name ungrateful or what? I'm retired. Are you gonna do the job? It's not a difficult question. Yes or no? Say it. You see, girl, where there's a will, and there is a will, there's a way. There's always a way. Actors and budding screenwriters David Sinto and Lewis Mellis originally met at a party in the early 90s where they hit it off talking about films, theatre, art and music. Sinto from Britain and Mellis from Scotland started working together on a stage play they titled Gangster No. 1, which was produced by the Armada Theatre in Islington, London in 1995. The play was received warmly enough to enable the pair to begin adapting it for the screen. The screenplay was sent to Jonathan Glazer, who wanted to make it his debut feature after a decade in television advertisements and music videos. Casting disagreements ensued, with producers wanting English stage actor Peter Bowles in the lead role that eventually went to Malcolm McDowell. Ray Winston was interested too, but when Sinto, Mellis and Glazer left the project, Winston went with them. The writers said that the final product, made without any influence from them, was ruined, bastardised and mutated. Gangster No. 1 was released on June 9th, 2000, three months before the release of what would eventually be Sinto and Mellis' second credit. The pair hated that their first attempt at writing for the screen had left them with such a bad taste in their mouth. In response, they wrote Sexy Beast, utilising their anger to improvise the explosive dialogue of their character Don Logan. The finished screenplay was sent to producer Jeremy Thomas, who had previously teamed up with Nicholas Rogue on Bad Timing and Insignificance, with Bernardo Bertolucci on The Last Emperor, and with David Cronenberg on Naked Lunch and Crash. Thomas said that Sexy Beast, which was sent to him with Glazer already attached to direct, was the beginning of a new phase of working with first-time filmmakers. It was very stimulating having a first-time talent. 
The dialogue, as you see, is exceptional. I had never read a script like it, and I thought this has got to be made. Sexy Beast started shooting in the week between Christmas and New Year of 1998, with a budget of just over $4 million, wrapping up production just 10 weeks later. It was shot at various locations in the United Kingdom, at both Three Mills Studios and Action Underwater Studios, as well as Luton Hoo Estate, the Grosvenor Hotel and elsewhere, with the majority of the film shot on location in Agua Amarga in the southern coastal city of Almeria, Spain. In fact, the house used in the film, known as El Palmeral or Palm Grove, is even available for short-stay rentals from $160 per night. Ray Winston, known for his roles as a hard man in films like Alan Clark's Scum, Gary Oldman's Nil by Mouth and Tim Ross' The War Zone, reteamed with Sinto, Mellis and Glazer to play the film's lead, Gary Gal Dove. He was joined by a cast made up of fellow Brits, including Ben Kingsley as the antagonistic sociopath Don Logan and Ian McShane as crime kingpin Teddy Bass. Released in the UK in September of 2000, the film was immediately hailed as a refreshing take on the British gangster film, with an emphasis on performance rather than the heist. Luke, what did you think of Sexy Beast? Well, I first watched Sexy Beast for this episode. It was actually my 300th film of the year, according to Letterboxd. Oh, very good. I know. Yeah. Which is weird that I hadn't seen it before, because I love... Jonathan Glazer's other, well, subsequent two films, Birth and Under the Skin. I really liked it. I had lots of fun. I'm probably not generally drawn to gangster films. That might have been why I didn't seek it out. But this is a really unusual gangster film, because for a long time it doesn't concern itself with, like, genre conventions. You know, the first clue we get that this is not going to be your typical gangster experience is, like, those hot pink kitschy titles which make it look like a teenage comedy circa 1995 and then you know the film title is superimposed over that freeze frame of gal's gut which is the film's first joke and it tells us what a good sport ray winstone is i think my favorite part of the film is the first hour uh when it's playing almost like an ingmar bergman film you know if you like were to summarize the first hour it would be like a pair of married couples enjoying a weekend at a spanish villa get visited upon by a ghost from their past you know one of those like really evasive plot synopses that sounds like uh you know what netflix would write as the plot synopsis yes <laughs> and that whole part is great i mean the the, the dinner scene which is the precursor to don logan arriving really sets you up for all oh, you're really gearing up to see what this guy is going to look like and what he's going to do. I think ultimately it's a film of contrast. You know, we get the hot, bright openness of Spain set against the overcast skies of London. We get Gal's limp shoulders in Spain and then his fixed shoulders in London. And then we get uh, Don Logan being a fish out of water in Spain. And then we get Gal being a fish out of water in London. So I love the way that there are these interesting repetitions and switches throughout the film. There's even TV shows about it. I know you don't watch a lot of the Lifestyle Channel, but I do. And there's um, Escape to the Sun or Escape for the Summer or something, one of those shows. And it's all about British people moving to areas like Portugal and Spain. So it's such a it's such a big thing. There's even a scene in this movie where Gal describes how he feels about London now. And I forget the words that he uses, but basically he calls it a, a shithole. Yeah. You know, depressing and wet and dark and... I mean, the film does such a good job of showing you exactly how he feels about London. And it also does a really good job of showing you in those set-up scenes how happy he is and how much he has to lose by having his past life kind of intrude upon this perpetual holiday retirement that he's got going on. The only other thing I would say about the film is that it has a very liberal use of the C-word. 
and its casual kind of throwaway usage is very British. Um, like there's a great deal of anxiety around that word in the US and I think even sort of where we are in Australia. Uh, and it made me think of, do you remember when Ricky Gervais did Inside the Actors Studio mm. and James Lipton said, what is your favourite curse word? Mm. And he said, cunt. And the audience, the American audience went, Ooh. so, you know, there's that sort of cultural difference. And I, I think uh, Kate Blanchett was the other one who said her favourite curse word was cunt oh God, on Inside remember. the Actors Studio. And, you know, Ricky Gervais is British and Kate Winslet, uh, sorry, Kate Blanchett is Australian. And uh, I think those two countries have kind of taken that word under their wing. We certainly have here. I mean, you can go into, uh, you can catch up with a friend that you haven't seen on, how the fuck are you, you can't. Yeah. It's a kind of greeting of kindness. Yeah, I think we've taken away a lot of the stigma, probably just by overusing it. Uh, we've taken away a lot of the stigma around that word, and I don't think America has... It's interesting, I read that producer Jerry Thomas said that it was hard, they had a hard time putting together a trailer because that <laughs> word is so peppered throughout this film. I would be really interested to know how many times it's used, but it must be several hundred, like between two or three hundred times, I would guess. Uh, I know the word fuck is used a lot. It's not the most ever in cinema. I think that there was um, a study done by one of those uh, websites that screens movies for parents. That's too bad the film can't boast that accolade. Actually, another film that Ray Winston was in, Nil by Mouth, actually did have the record for a couple of years for how many times the word fuck was said. Uh, and I think also for how many times the word cunt was said. And we're obviously going to have to put an explicit content warning on this episode. I'm going to bleep them. <laughs> Are you really? I think so, yeah. <laughs> I think we should just leave it. But this website, Screener, which screens movies for parents, says that at least 108 F words, 5 S words, 19 slang terms using female genitals, so cunt and pussy. So at least 19. No, there's way more than that. I do um, not believe it. Well, it's one of those things where I think if you went through and added them up, it probably would be far less than you think. And it's because... It is still one of those words that makes such an impression. If you hear it once, you think you hear it ten times. Mm. But there have been those times throughout cinema history where it said, I think Jack Nicholson in Carnal Knowledge was the first person to use it in a motion picture, a feature-length motion picture. And uh, he used it as an adjective rather than calling somebody a name. And then, of course, there was... Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz in Kick-Ass. That's what I was going to... The big furor about that was that she was so young when she said it. I think she was 11 during the time of filming. So you can see why people kicked up a bit of a fuss. Yes. But certainly by that point, Kick-Ass, there had been a lot of uses of it and, and Sexy Beast and Nil by Mouth and a lot of these British films were the reason that there had been a lot of uses of that that word. Tell us about your experience with Sexy Beast. When did you see it and what, what were uh, your thoughts? I'm not sure exactly when I first saw it. It was sometime... Before Birth came out, though, so uh, I didn't know really anything about Jonathan Glazer. I don't, didn't know and still don't know too much about the British gangster genre. I think I'd seen at this point Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, and I might have seen some earlier films without really realising what genre that I was watching. Certainly since then, it's never been something that I've really gone to. So this uh, podcast, doing this podcast, was a bit of an eye-opener in terms of research as well, and hopefully we can do that genre a little bit of justice. But certainly the first time I saw Sexy Beast, I thought it was quite
quite remarkable. It left a bit of an impression on me. I thought that the character of uh, Don Logan, obviously, is the thing that you really take away from this movie. His character is so exceptionally written. The language that's used in this movie, even though a lot of it is fucking cunt, it's done in such a stylish way. There is a beat to it every time that these words are used. I think Sinto and Mellis in that screenplay is just superb. Looking back now with a little bit more clarity on the genre and those kinds of films and obviously in America and even the actors you can see that there's a lot of differences between Sexy Beast and the standard gangster film and we'll get into some of that stuff a little bit later but yeah I really like Sexy Beast and you know that's why I put it forward as an episode that we could do on this podcast plus I've always wanted you to watch it so (laughs) this was my way of getting you to do that. (laughs) Mission accomplished but I think Jonathan Glaze is a really interesting director. He was best known at this point for his work in television commercials and music videos and back in 2003 there was this company called Palm Pictures that released a series of music video compilations and Jonathan Glazer was in the second bunch of those but some of the other directors that uh, they profiled were Spike Jones, who went on to do Being John Malkovich Adaptation and Her Michelle Gondry who did Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind The Science of Sleep and Be Kind Rewind and Mark Romanek who did One Hour Photo and one that we loved much less, Never Let Me Go. Those directors, as well as Glazer, went on to have what are currently successful careers in feature films. You know, they didn't just have a one-hit wonder or anything. They've actually gone on to, you know, they are full-time feature film directors now. And obviously, I think that the the influence of music videos and some of the ones that Glazer did include Karma Police by Radiohead and Virtual Insanity by Jamiroquai. I think that the music video has had quite an influence on Glazer's career and uh, I would say Michelle Gondry is the other one that stands out for me uh, has his music videos influencing his later work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you can definitely feel his background in Sexy Beast. I mean, the sound design is just really, really well done and it hasn't aged at all. The use of synths and repetitive electronic beats, they really sensualise Glazer's images. Of the three directors you've mentioned, one commonality between them is that their films challenge conventional narrative structures. They're not afraid of abstraction and, of course, music and music videos are more abstract than narrative film. And it's really, really nice. I mean, what you get are are some films that feel quite different and unique. As soon as Sexy Beast begins, you're sort of aware that you're going to be going on something that's not just a linear, typical journey that abstract devices are going to be used to kind of illustrate the internal conflict that Gal is going to be going through in the film in a, in a really interesting way. I think Sexy Beast, some of those devices work better than others, uh, which we can talk about a little later. I particularly like the use of slow motion in Sexy Beast, which of course is a very, very typical device used in music videos. And I'm thinking particularly of Dee Dee's dancing as yeah. it is seen through Gail's eyes. And, you know, Glazer slows down that shot so that we really get a sense of Gail's joy and rapture in that moment. I think Glazer needs to establish that Gail is a happy man so that we share in his anxiety when that happiness is threatened. That sequence in particular is, is a great way to start the film. There's a Twitter feed and you can find it on Facebook and it's called One Perfect Shot and I think it's about the fifth time that I've brought it up in our podcast before. The One Perfect Shot for me in this movie is the opening shot. Staring down from above at Gal, he's lying poolside and then framed next to him is his swimming pool with the two love hearts, the tiles that are so important throughout this movie. That's the perfect vision 
for me of what I think of when I think of Sexy Beast because I think if you if you eliminate Don Logan from this movie it's a really really touching love story at times and yeah. it's something that is uh, not often explored in gangster films not often explored in crime films apart from you know the gangster who you know has to leave the love of his life behind because he can't drag her into that world it is the heartbeat of this movie Gal and Dove, uh, Gal and Dee Dee yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think the filmmakers agreed with you as well. There's a kind of crappy nine minute featurette on the Sexy Beast Blu-ray. By the way, it has the most insane thing in it. When Amanda Redman, who plays his wife, comes up to speak, they've put the wrong name. Oh. They call her Andrea Redman. Oh, right. <laughs> in, ti- in a title at the bottom right of the screen. It's insane. But um, Jonathan Glazer said that the film is a simple story about the redemptive power of love. Mm-hmm. Ray Winstone said that it's a love story that turns into a horror story. So I think the people who made the film were very much aware that they were making a love story. For me, it's less about the romance and more about Gail's struggle, lonely struggle. One moment that's so powerful to me is after that dinner scene, we cut to a kind of dream scene where he's at the restaurant but he's in a desert and there's nobody around him he's still got his food in front of him and then we get that rabbit and so it's great that you know even though up until then he's been surrounded by friends and he's part of this tightly knit community the arrival of don is an isolating experience for him he knows that ultimately he is coming for him and he alone will have to resolve it. He can't rely on his wife or friends or anyone. That's right. There's a really great series of shots there because, I mean, it's just the mere mention of Don's name that, that sets him off on this. But he is sitting at the, di- the table and it is such a really well-made scene of the, the sweating anxiety that he would oh. be starting to feel. It gets to that point where it then moves the shot so that he is framed. Even though he's got three friends around him, he is framed solo. And then it cuts to him actually sitting solo at the table. Yeah. So it's just a really literal reading of his feelings uh, in the end. And uh, we're going to get to the, the anthropomorphic bunny. Music videos, I think they allow a filmmaker to explore visually what's usually explored in a film through exposition and glazer has done this in all of his movies i mean birth is really a silent movie at times it's so quiet under the skin we'll get to that later i hate it under the skin but we'll as i say we'll get to that later but i think michelle gondry and and glazer are the two most successful at then transporting the what they've done in music video to a long-form feature film and i think even spike jones has done it in being john malkovich i mean how do you take a script that's about an actual actor how do you write a movie like that? How do you write a movie like Adaptation, which is a movie within a movie, a story within a story? I mean, such such intelligent work that was just not being done at the time. The cinematographer for Sexy Beast was Ivan Bird, and this is to date his only feature film. He uh, is best known for working with Glazer and others as a DOP for advertising campaigns, and he's even directed some of his own. He started as a stills photographer, and I think the nature of advertising cinematography kind of dictates that you have to get the vital information into each frame, so it's no wonder the Sexy Beast, which is thematically quite sparse, is somehow visually so rich. But there's a funny story about Ivan Bird. He was unable to do the pickup shots for Sexy Beast, following the original shot shoot so Daniel Landon came in to help out and Landon actually went on to shoot Glazer's latest feature which was Under the Skin so I feel a bit sorry for Ivan Bird he might have missed out there (laughs) the other thing that uh, I think comes from a mix of intelligent writing and intelligent filmmaking and that music video past is that there are so many filmmaking techniques used throughout Sexy Beast 
They include the musical interludes, the dream sequences, the flashbacks and the non-linear narrative, and a lot of recurring motifs. And I think that aids Glazer in telling his story in an interesting and non-expository way. And Sexy Beast is really tight, it's 88 minutes long. Glazer does use a lot of these time-cutting tricks to keep it this way. The film opens to Gal relaxing poolside, as we've talked about, and it's set to the tune of Peaches by The Stranglers, which is a seminal British punk song. The lyrics of the song, they follow a man who's sitting on a crowded beach watching scantily clad girls walk past. And a critic at the time said of the song, the lead singer sings with such a lecherous sneer and the sexual tension is so unrelenting as to spill into macho parody. And we immediately know that Dove is in a very relaxed moment. He's possibly retired, but at the very least he's enjoying time off. And that he is an in-charge, sexual, and possibly sexually dominant person. Glazer utilises non-linear narrative later to tell the story of how and why Don Logan came to Spain to recruit Dove. And this is probably my favourite scene in the film. It's a, a sequence that intercuts between Logan relating the story to Dove in the present moment. Back to middleman Stan in London, asking Logan for help putting a team together for a heist organized by one of his clients and then further back to kingpin teddy bass conceiving the heist after meeting harry a banker at an exclusive orgy and the dialogue is intercut between these three sequences to tell one complete conversation that is logan relating the story to dove without seeming expository and while remaining really visually interesting It is. It's such a great example of cutting. It's done really well, although that sequence has one of my most annoying lines in it. It's the line where he's, and Kingsley says, I know a bloke who knows a bloke who knows a bloke. And then he goes, you know this bloke. This is a bloke, you know. It's a little too Dr. Seuss for me. (laughs) You know, like I was like, oh no. But it is, it's really good. It's a fantastic moment. Is that the one that has one of your other favourite lines or is that later on? You're going to turn this opportunity, yes. (laughs) No, I love that line. That's great. But yeah, that other one was a bit too... I can feel the screenwriter being a little clever here and it sort of took me out of the movie. Yeah, but I I mean, to tell one complete conversation through several conversations like that, I mean, it uses the dialogue that Don would be using in Spain. It uses that same dialogue in London in one of the flashback bits, you know, to form that complete conversation. So it's really intelligent. Obviously, later in the film, there's a non-linear narrative during the high sequence, which is intercut with scenes that occurred before Dove left for Spain and scenes that are happening as Dove arrives at the Grosvenor Hotel. And in this instance, it's used to keep vital information from the audience and therefore it builds both suspense and intrigue, albeit for only a short moment because it gives away that suspense. It tells you what happens soon after that. Just to talk a little bit about the style of filmmaking, Jonathan Glazer called it neo-noir. Noir emerged in the 40s and 50s and hit a resurgence in the 80s. It didn't ever go away. You know, filmmakers were always making noir-like films or homages to noir cinema, but it really hit a resurgence in the 80s. Noir, we've talked about a lot in our Key Largo episode. You know, it deals with the interplay of shadows and light, tilted camera angles, severe framing. From a narrative perspective, it looks at morally ambiguous characters who operate in a world of paranoia, shifting loyalties, revenge, alienation, that sort of thing. What makes a good noir compelling is the tension that exists between an immoral world filtered through the director's often highly moralised point of view. Films that were kind of neo-noirish that came out in the 80s were movies like Angel Heart and Blade Runner and even Tim Burton's Batman. You know, these films tended to romanticise the style with very rich compositions of browns and blues and blacks. Sexy Beast doesn't really replicate the composition of traditional noir, 
but it does borrow a lot of stylistic techniques, like you were saying, the nonlinear narrative, but also in its framing and its structure. Neo-noir is generally self-aware, and so it has more fun than traditional noir did. A perfect example of this in Sexy Beast is the heart-shaped smoke ring that forms between Gal and uh, Dee Dee as she's doing her sultry dance poolside. It's kind of unreal and playful in tone, yet is very evocative of noir. I hadn't read that. I hadn't read that he thought of this film as a neo-noir, and I'm surprised to hear it because uh, I definitely did not think noir at all when I was watching Sexy Beast. Mm. And I guess that's because it's bathed in so much sunlight for an hour. Yeah, I mean, noir, you think dark, you think fedoras. It definitely isn't traditional neo-noir, but it must have been an inspiration for him. And you can see it certainly in framing. Like, there's a lot of severe framing. The non-linear structure, as you say, there are certain things that are carried over from noir. Yeah, and I guess that even if you're looking at it from noir, Dee Dee could be considered Gal's femme fatale. Yeah. You know, she could be bring about his undoing absolutely yeah there's a a a dream sequence used in the film in fact there's a couple of dream sequences but this dream sequence that you talked about depicts dove in the desert eating dinner by himself he's approached by a man in a black rabbit costume or maybe it's just an anthropomorphic bunny and this returns later when dove is in london he's eating alone in a restaurant he's approached by teddy bass who questions him about don's whereabouts is teddy the harbinger of death as the rabbit was in dove's earlier dream And the rabbit is just one of many recurring motifs throughout this film, and uh, it's probably the richest. It seems to symbolise Dove's criminal past, which has come back to find him and haunt him. It finds him in the desert, and then again in London. A hunting scene during which Dove, his best mate H, and their surrogate son Enrique, the Spanish pool boy, are each unable to shoot and kill a rabbit, thereby not eliminating the threat of Gal's past, and finally at the end of the film, where the rabbit now haunts Don Logan far beneath the ground in a grave of his own making. Eventually, death will catch up with you. And Gal's entire character arc is about escaping this same fate. He's the only man that was smart enough to get out early enough. But also, what's interesting about when the rabbit first shows up, the actual rabbit, that's a really great moment because it's almost a moment of failed masculinity. And you know, they just laugh it off because they're so self-possessed and confident. You imagine if that had happened to Don, he would have reached over and strangled the (laughs) rabbit with his bare hands, you know? So it kind of is interesting that it does that. I mean, another reading that I read about, another potential reading of the rabbit metaphor, rabbits culturally have meant all different kinds of things, unclean, impure. Often they were uh, depicted as tricksters. Another thing that the rabbit is symbolic of, probably most commonly, is that it's highly fertile and procreates obsessively. One writer suggested that the rabbit in Sexy Beast might symbolise Don's sexual frustration and complicated feelings about Dee Dee and particularly Jackie and how his interactions, um, or his intentions rather, threaten those around him. That felt like a bit of an overreach to me. I'm, uh, I'm much more with you. I think it represents uh, Don, uh, Gal's criminal past uh, catching up with him. That becomes clearest in the last scene when we see the rabbit kicking open Don's coffin. That reading's interesting because I think there's a lot of sexual readings in Sexy Beast and mm. we'll get into that soon. I would disagree with that reading just because I don't think at that point in the movie that Gal and H had been emasculated. So while they're hunting the real rabbit, if if it is a if there is kind of some 
sexual connotation, I don't believe there's a reason for that failure at that point. That's true. And I also don't think that Gal feels at all threatened uh, by Don in terms of, oh, he's going to take my wife. Because Gal and Dee Dee are so connected. And it's so clear that Dee Dee is just put off by Don and, and Jackie as well. Mm. Like they're both, they're both horrified by him. I don't see Don threatening Gal in that way. I think he threatens him in terms of you're going to come back and you're going to be drawn back into your old life. Talk to me, Gal. I'm here for you. I'm a good listener. What can I say, Don? I've said it all. I'm retired. Shut up, cunt. You louse. You've got some fucking neck, ain't you? Retired, fuck off. You're revolting. Look at your fucking suntan. Like leather. Like a leather man. Your skin. You can make a fucking suitcase out of you. Old all. You look like a crocodile, fat crocodile, fat bastard. You look like a fucking EDR man, you know what I mean? Stay here. You should be ashamed of yourself. Who do you think you are? Give me the castle. Cock of the wall. <laughs> well, you think this is the Wheel of Fortune? You think you just make your damn fuck off? Leave the table. Thanks, Don. See you, Don, off to sunny Spain now, Don. Fuck off, Don. Lying your pool like a fat blob laughing at me. Do you think I'm going to have that? Do you really think I'm going to have that, you ponce? I love the last joke of the movie, which is where the rabbit is kicking open Don's grave and, like, Don is just seen smoking and he gives this withering reaction to the rabbit. Sort of like this idea that even death has not repressed him somehow, that yeah. he's still fighting. That scene, from what I've read, was not the most popular scene. A lot of people didn't like that last scene of Sexy Beast. Well, actually, I don't know that the rabbit scenes add very much. I think they almost feel a little tacked on. And I was going to ask what you made of them because my first impression watching the movie was, OK, can we get past the rabbit and go back to the story? Look, I, I tend to think that a lot of times during dream sequences and, and such. I think if you look at it the way that we've spoken about it, I think certainly it adds something to the movie. That said, I think that you could probably show it in a different way, and I think it's also very symbolic and very in keeping with Glazer's past at that point. And I think he would drop those kinds of assumptions for his later films as he got more into filmmaking rather than, you know, yeah. music videos. I could have done without them. Hmm. One thing that I do love about this film is, and all of Glazer's films, is this element of mysticism. Specifically, the boulder coming down, which tellingly comes from behind Gal and over his shoulder. So sort of like behind him, like his past is behind him. But also when they're having the barbecue and it spits at him, there are all these little like omens and precursors to, before we get to that dinner scene where the danger takes shape. I think Under the Skin and Birth also share that sense of the uncanny, whilst never coming out and acknowledging that there are mystical forces in the world. Yeah, and the boulder scene is, look, you could read so much into that one minute. I mean, the boulder comes down that hill, it narrowly misses Dove, and it is obviously a precursor to another imminent threat, which is Don Logan. But where does the boulder land? It lands on his tiles. (laughs) It, It breaks his tiles, his love heart tiles that were just shot from above in that what I think is a perfect shot, that symbol of him and Dee Dee. And, you know, the boulder just crushes it. And that's what Don Logan is there to do as well. He's there to get dove there by any means and if it means crushing everybody around him he'll do it but i think the fact that the boulder narrowly missed gal left him alive and then ultimately gal ends up alive just last night i was reading pauline kale's review of blowout and it ends in the most beautiful way where she says in one sense this film is just about solving 
an initial problem, which is, you know, when John Travolta is in the booth and they can't get the screen? Yeah. At the end, he's got the screen. Mm. It's a great movie for that reason, that it just sets up the simple problem and finishes and then solves it. And in the same way, this movie does that as well. Yeah. It creates the hole at the bottom of the pool, and then the whole movie is just about getting that fixed. And I love the simplicity of that. There's another recurring recurring motif with the pool, which is this symbol of relaxation and contentment and a new life. And that returns later on with the heist, which is in a bathhouse. And the only way to get through, the only way Gal's going to escape London and get back to Spain is by drilling through a pool, which that boulder started doing for him at his own house. So I mean, there's, there's all of these recurring motifs, which I love recurring motifs in movies and in TV shows. And I think they, they can add so much depth and I certainly think that they're used to great effect in Sexy Beast. Okay, we're now going to play our interview with Julianne White, who plays Jackie in Sexy Beast. We had a bit of an issue with our interviews for this episode. We recorded them both and they both failed. There were some corrupt files. And both Julianne and Brian Eggett, whom you'll hear from later, were good enough to speak with us again. So what tremendous sports they were. Thank you so much. Sexy Beast came to me through an audition perfectly normal way for any um, jobbing actor. I heard much later that by the time I got to audition, they were on their third casting director. So um, I don't know the story of why, other than they must have been having trouble finding the people they wanted. Certainly, I think for my part, you know, they already had their stars. They had Ben Kingsley, obviously, and Ray Winston and Amanda. And I know on the part of Jackie, they seem to be still looking for. So lucky me, I got to have a go. I did first audition. I did a second audition where they bring other people in and making sure the writers were there. And then there was a final audition, which I thought was another audition. But as it turned out, it was just meeting Jonathan and the writers and discussing who would be my husband. So I was quite taken aback to be in a in a meeting where we were just chatting thinking when am I going to have to do my thing again um but that didn't happen in fact the problem had arisen in that Bill Nye was actually asked to play H originally but was not able to get out of another commitment to another film so then they were still searching for the next actor to come in instead of Bill Nye which as you know turned out to be the gorgeous Kevin Kendall, who was saved from acting abyss by Mary Selway. So we got him and I got the part. (laughs) Were you privy to who had been cast at that point when you came in for your first or second audition? Did they let you know? Okay. No, absolutely not. No, I was flying completely blind. And you never know what kind of, especially with a film, you often don't know much about whether it's, you know, it's a very tiny budget and a non-film or it's a big film. You get to know something about the reputation of people, i.e. writers and directors who are attached to it, but um, you often don't know more than that. So, and no, I was not privy to the to the cast beforehand. So, and I guess a bit the, of a shock. And <laughs> that would have been. Do you remember how you found out? At that third meeting that I thought was another audition, they said, oh no, it's it's you. And I went, oh, wow, thanks. So not only had no one no one had officially told you you had the part when you walked in, but you then you also found out that no. Ben Kingsley we and Ray Winston. We, you know, made teas and coffees, were chatting, and they were just getting on with the conversation about who they might be able to get to play my husband. And so I sat there thinking, um, they're talking like I'm already doing this part. So I actually sort of asked, and I went, yes, welcome to the team. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. That must have been so disorienting, that meeting. Yes, and, tr- and quite 
quite hard to try and keep, you know, cool, calm and collected in the knowledge that all you wanted to do was go, oh, my God, that's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, uh, you know, you say that you have a little bit of a knowledge about the writers and the director, but really how much knowledge did you have about Jonathan Glazer at the time and about the writers who had not had uh, a published screenplay at that point? No, absolutely. Well, knowledge about them only that I had been told they were, you know, incredibly clever and gifted and they had this extraordinary um, idea. With regards to Jonathan, that only takes Googling to see all the awards he had won coming from the world of commercials. So you knew that this was going to be his first feature, which is a big step for anybody. But I think you just took great faith in the fact that his eye for a picture was extraordinary. We've discussed, and I said on many occasions, certainly I feel that telling a story in 28 seconds, 30 seconds, possibly 50-something seconds, depending on the time length of a commercial, you are trying, in, in those kind of big commercials like the Guinness one, you are trying to make a mini film. And if you can get all the pictures and edit them together in a way that you get to tell a film in 28 seconds, then you have got to have an extraordinary talent. So you just have to take that talent and um, turn it into possibly 90 minutes or more. So great faith in that he, even though, you know, a very big leap for him professionally as well, that he would be able to pull it off in some quite phenomenal way. And And such a lovely man. I mean, really, really calm. You know, calm, gentle, nice, quietly confident man. His experience in advertisements, TV advertisements and music videos at that point, it obviously shows in in Sexy Beast. He's used so many stylistic flourishes which help move the narrative along and keep the film very tight. Yeah, that eye for a picture, the eye for lining up a shot that works. A lot of metaphors were used, for example, that phenomenal big boulder rolling down the hill, which was, you know, yet another symbol of Don Logan arriving. To my surprise, I think he used a lot of close-ups, a lot more close-ups than I would have expected. He obviously felt a lot of the actual story, apart from the pictures he was creating, had to come through just an actor's face or the character's face. So I think that was a surprise to me that he would focus a lot on that as well. One of the most striking close-ups in the film is yours when you sit down for that dinner scene, when we find out, you know, what's what's coming. (laughs) (laughs) When we first spoke, you said that that was, was that the first scene shot? Yes, yes. So the story was it was never supposed to be the first scene up for shooting, but Ben had been delayed in LA on another film through no fault of his own, actually. So the whole shooting schedule got switched around. I seem to remember it was virtually possibly the day before, certainly not much more than that, where they said, right, first scene up we're going to do is that restaurant scene. And I have to tell you, I was completely terrified. I remember ringing my um, husband going, oh, my God. They're going to shoot the restaurant scene first. Help! As you guys know already, it is it is the pivotal scene. It's the scene that, you know, we all call turns the movie from day into night. And it was really important to get it right. It was a really long day. It was a very tense day. And, yes, setting the tone for it was a fine line. Not to sort of give the whole game away, but create an atmosphere of, you know, foreboding and warning and of things to come because I was the one internally carrying the knowledge of what this would mean. Our other world had found us and um, that was going to totally and utterly destroy the 
happy equilibrium and safe place we thought we had found and created. It was tricky, but it was such a close, you know, that setting at that restaurant table, as you will know from talking to many actors, you you do forget that there are God knows how many other people in the room and all the cameras and everything because you're so close and speaking to the other actors. I mean, watching Ray do that monologue he gives at the restaurant table is just so mesmerizing and engaging and deep and significant. And as long as you're in there with them for every moment of it, you just keep feeling what's going on. And that scene is so sparsely written or or economically written. And so it's amazing to me that Jackie says so little, but through your pure expression, we feel like she's saying so much. Well, thank you. Obviously that's credit to the writer writers and well, to credit you. to the writers credit <laughs> then to jonathan for allowing the space and the shots to tell the story in the way you've just described how um, um how long had you spent with the uh, other cast members at this point do you know i wish i could remember exactly how many days i know we were we were taken out even about a week before shooting was supposed to commence so that we could you know hang out together getting that atmosphere of you've been best friends for a long time you do need more than five minutes and more than just turning up on the day. We had some other very serious homework, like getting a suntan. You know, that was very <laughs> important. Uh, that would have been hard in So I, I, I won't deny that we were learning lines on a sun lounge sometimes, <laughs> trying to get said suntan, and also have that bonding. I mean, we actually had a night that none of us will ever, the four of us, apart from not being able to discuss that with Kevin anymore, sadly, as you know, but um, the very first night we were all together in this very tiny little hotel, because Agua Marga is a very small, was then, I'm sure it's not now, but was a very small town. By the end of the evening, and we had a drink, we were laughing and chatting and getting to know each other, we seemed to slip in to this bizarre already married couple thing as corny as that sounds it just all clicked really really quickly so then having another week to sort of keep going with that camaraderie thank god we had it we were genuinely having a great time together no matter what kind of scene we were doing i mean that's why it must feel to us so effortless because i suppose in many ways it it, you'd already created that bond and it kind of at that point was effortless Absolutely. The, the the only effort was, you know, getting the tone of every particular scene right. But the friendship was already there. You're right. So there was no tension between anybody. We all felt we knew each other rather quickly or knew each other's characters rather quickly. And then once Ben arrives and the tone of the scenes change and his, he's there, how does that sort of affect shooting those scenes? What was that like? You know, the life imitating art thing <laughs> comes into into play so often. Because we'd already established ourselves as a, you know, neat little foursome of friends, the fact that his character was the one who was going to come in and change the status quo, remind us of our past, put the fear of God into us that Nirvana was suddenly going to be blown up, was actually true in a way. The very first scene that we shot with Ben was where he arrives at the villa storming in, in that lovely getting out of the car scene he does. (laughs) But when we were all sitting in that sunken lounge where Ben has his back to the sky, which made for that sort of extraordinary silhouette of lighting. We were all genuinely, as ourselves, nervous because it is, well, now Sir Ben Kingsley, Ben Kingsley at the time, it is that extraordinary actor that you're in the presence of and he's brought with him this ready-made, full-on, astounding character and you react accordingly. That was an intense day of 
shooting because that's another new part of the story where you finally get to see him and it's all going to unravel his part in all of our pasts. It was intimidating, definitely. For somebody like me who hadn't had that experience with somebody like that, it was very intimidating. I just had to hang on to the character, hang on to the story and be in it. And you transfer those feelings. You transfer them into um, the story that you know you're creating. Yeah, big day. Another big day. Which day wasn't a big day? (laughs) Well, it's a film that deals with very kind of, I suppose, intense emotional scenes. So you probably didn't have much, much of a break. There were some other jollier days, uh, as I say, you know, barbecue and dancing. And also um, Amanda and I had a couple of fun days that we shot a load of stuff that isn't in the film. It was like Thelma and Louise in the sports car driving around the mountains and coming back with lots of shopping bags and all sort of fun stuff that it obviously added to our characters and our relationship. And they didn't make the cut, obviously ended up being superfluous to needs or they were overrunning or whatever. But um, so we had some other, we had some other lighter days of filming, put it that way, to juxtapose between the heavy nightmare stuff. Hey, I'm wondering when you approach uh, uh, Jackie, do you sort of, as an actress, have to reconcile something like why she would sleep with or why she did sleep with Don Logan three years ago? Yeah, I think you just have to go to that space where you know many, many men and women have had to do things in their lives to earn money that uh, is not, well, it's a choice, but uh, a choice that often, not always, but often people make when there is no choice and do things that they may even at the time know they'll regret, but it's a way to keep body and soul together. So you just have to accept that that was then, that was the only choice she had to make at the time, or it just had to be got on with. I mean, there are things that in a story like that, you never know, was there a threat? Was there, you do this, or I'm going to do something terrible to a member of your family? Or you just have to take it that we've all probably done things, hopefully not quite so violent or uncomfortable, but we may have all done things that we think, I wish I hadn't been in that position. So you just have to take it that that is the story that was the story and somehow she managed to move through that and find a way out the other side but when things certain things in your life have happened they won't ever disappear from your being your makeup your cell composition they will have had an extraordinary effect on you or an effect of some kind and it becomes part of your makeup if your mother dies when you're five years old that will be in your makeup for life and you will deal with it and it will come out in ways you might not know later but it certainly becomes part of the character build-up so have it in there take it with you but as you saw as you see later in the film she's she's made decisions about him and not wanting a further part of it you know because he's he's definitely there he was possibly not coming back to get don and do to get gal and do another job he was coming back to see why the bleep bleep she would ever have got together with cavern you know he's in he's insulted by that he's really really angry that she would choose him cavern over don yeah definitely i mean i think there's definitely this feeling undercurrent feeling that the real reason he's there is for Jackie and I think uh, Mm. Gal even says it to him at one point yes very reluctantly but he says it to him it's almost like touching at a final straw to get rid of Don when Gal says that and it's also touching a sensitive point for Don that's right yeah I really because it's about woman it's about you know sexual prowess and all of this stuff that we feel that he's not quite great at (laughs) yeah and 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 deeply is deeply insulted I mean, it's a total affront to his manhood. He gets so angry. And the other really 
smart thing about how you play Jackie is that, you know, you don't play her like in any way like she's interested in him, in any way like she may have agreed to have sex with him because she wanted to. You get the real feeling that she just, her skin crawls at the very idea of him being within sight of her. And so, you know, that really does tell the audience that whatever happened, there was a kind of bartering system or something she needed to do in order to survive. It absolutely was that. You may remember the scene on the um, the patio and Don's there. We're all there. And um, it's, it's like the desertion. Gal says he'll go and get some drinks. Dee Dee says she'll go and help and she leaves. And then you remember there's just Don and I sitting there in that moment of awkwardness <laughs> where he says his line, I'm saying nothing. She's refusing to answer any questions about the past, to discuss the past and will not have a bar of the past and certainly will not have a bar of entertaining the idea of it ever happening again or in the future. It's a moment that shows great strength. Why she feels capable of having such strength when they may be in a position where they could be dead in a minute is huge, really huge. And I I think it was important to somehow within the film show her strength, but without being really overt about it, you know, not punching around with, I'm really tough, I'm really tough, or arguing back at him. It was the way it was written, and as you have previously said, not written, stuff that wasn't, you know, in words on a page. Mm -hmm. It was really important to um, bring that out somehow that um, she'd made a decision and she was going to stick by it no matter what the threat. Well, yeah, I mean, the fact that she is so decidedly not flirtatious and that she cuts him off at every pass. I love your line reading when he's like, oh, you've got a great voice. Did you ever work in an office? And you just say, no. (laughs) (laughs) You can in other lighter moments when you're reading the script laugh as we both just did (laughs) i love that answer it's a great moment and it's it's because you know everyone's sort of tiptoeing around him and humoring him and that's just a moment where you (laughs) you just don't you just say no yeah it's it's funny isn't it because you can see so many so many other moments where ray has to tiptoe ben was completely and utterly extraordinary i mean it's a character nobody will ever forget it was a great part of his career because nobody would ever in a million years really have thought the same man that played gandhi could be a convincing killer gangster yeah but full credit it must always go to Ray because if you didn't believe his fear, then you would never have believed that Don was capable of killing anybody on sight or doing anything he felt like doing to damage anybody's lives or careers. You have to have both actors really pulling that off together. Ray Winston is a much easier belief as um, as somebody who could kill somebody. Julianne, do you remember when you first saw the film and, and what that was like? Big experience, completely blown away, really and utterly blown away because we weren't even watching rushes. You know, often you're in a situation to see rushes, possibly nightly or just occasionally. We didn't look at monitors when we were on the set, which often you get to do. So first of all, his eye for the picture, I repeat, was quite incredible. Never quite realised the concentration of close-ups he would use to tell the story. I give full credit to the editors. I thought it was amazing. There were actually two editors in the end. He had the first editor on board for quite a while and then he went to do more editing with his favoured commercials editor as well. So editing is such an extraordinary art. I thought that was very impressive. Not to forget that I didn't see any of the filming that went on in London. So I didn't see the underwater stuff. I didn't see the robbery. I didn't see, never got to meet Ian McShane as part of the film. 
So all of that was a complete surprise to me. So I did get to watch a lot of the movie as a punter, which was a great surprise. Then finally, as an actor, you slowly realise as you're watching the film that a lot of it is on the cutting room floor. But you you can see why it needed to be dropped or it would have been nice if it was in. And it's his story to tell. So, um, yeah, all of those combined into one amazing and fairly emotional evening, as we said, made much harder and more emotional by the fact that Kevin wasn't with us. I know you hear actors say this all the time but it was a very intense time anybody will tell you when you go away to shoot you know I know people shoot films all over the world but just say it's Bulgaria or in this case Spain that that is the only world you have which makes you know the whole filming process a lot better I think most will agree that your real life doesn't get in the way of you doing your job but it means you are 24-7 your little private camp so to get to the end of that and wait till the film's finished and get to see it and not have Kevin with us was was horrible Really horrible. Yeah, it must have been. And H is a phenomenal character. I mean, there's so many memorable scenes, but for me, none more so than the the final scene. Uh, and it, I think it shows the kind of relationship that you all had on set, but it also shows it shows his funny side. I think it's hilarious when he's talking about the pill that can allow your hair to stay in place. And it's so well done. It's such a beautiful finish to the movie. I agree with you. There's another light, lovely day. You see, there were yeah. some light, lovely, fun days <laughs> to juxtapose with killing people and things. That day was glorious. He was that funny all the time. Trust me, in real life. Kevin had the most beautifully precise, proper RP British accent. And so he'd turn it on, do his thing on screen, and then be that funny. I promise you, the laugh you see me do lying on that sun lounger is genuine, hysterical, proper laughing. There's no acting required with him. He hadn't done a lot of movies over time, but he'd done a couple of them. Uh, he'd done Sexy Beast and another one just before that. So was he, was he at that point looking to get back into films? He genuinely was just excited to be working again. I know, for example, that in his youth, he, I think it was the very first Calvin Klein model. He'd obviously gone to New York and had some time in America. But there were very, very dark years pre, as you say, just before the job before Beast. The story always went that Mary Selway found him working in a charity shop or something. Thank God he had a you know chance to come back. And I know from that lovely miniature family time we had that he was just grateful he I mean if the film had done nothing or done everything it was really irrelevant to him the thing that mattered most was his experience in Spain for that time one of his most joyous things he always spoke about was a this new little family and some new friends he never dreamt of becoming friends with also the fact that he got to have a best mate in Ray and he said where in the world was somebody like me going to have somebody like Ray Winston as a best friend and it just delighted him side note he was also a phenomenal photographer he had all these cameras and lenses with him and uh, was uh, I was a bit of an amateur in that respect so he was teaching me a lot about how to do this and what lenses to use and uh, the whole thing was just a joy to him so I'm I'm glad that his reincarnation back into the the world of acting was so lovely for him. If that had to be his last job, then I know he was genuinely happy and had had a, a great last few months. That's a really quite stunning story that he was found in, yeah, in a charity, charity shop, shop and, yeah. Then, yeah, and then brought back and then that he had such a, such a good time on set and that, you know, ultimately, even though he never got to know this, while he was here, that he was part of a film that is now 
remembered so fondly and they, those must be some really special memories particularly for you absolutely they will they will go with me forever it's 20 years next year i think is it yeah Oh my God, since yeah, since we did the shoot. And to this day, um, Amanda remains one of my best friends. She's very good at coercing in the nicest possible way people to helping with her drama school. It's called the Artists Theatre School that she started over 20 years ago. It's very much a charity. It's her way of giving to a new generation. I started, not long after we finished the film, I started teaching and um, choreographing and working with her and putting big shows on and small plays and things. And I do it to this day. We've just finished first semester back at drama school. It's just a Saturday school. We finished a series of master classes where I got some lovely guests in and indeed be with her for Christmas Eve, drinks even. So, you know, how, how amazing that you get to have a, a, a brand new friendship like that with somebody so lovely. Julianne, we've taken up more of your time than is, is really fair and you've been so wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, please. It's a pleasure. I am incredibly proud to be a part of something that turned out to be quite a cult film, really. I know, I know other people thought it should have been bigger in terms of the world's knowledge of it and for various reasons that didn't happen, but it certainly is a part of film history and it, it was an incredible honour and a privilege, as you can imagine, for me to have even been involved in it. So, thank you. It's lovely that it goes on. We're looking at Saturday, but you're needed in London this Friday. It's a bit sudden, isn't it? Sudden? No, it's very far from sudden. Teddy's been working on this for five months. Dan, almost that. I've been in on it for two. It's not sudden. Preparation, preparation, preparation. As far as the actual job's concerned, it's a piece of piss. A monkey could do it. That's what I thought of you. Let's talk a little bit about a genre which neither of us are too familiar with, which we talked about a little bit before, which is the British crime film, particularly the gangster film. But the British crime drama and the gangster film have been among the most enduring genres of cinema in the last half century. This ranges from A Clockwork Orange by Kubrick, the Michael Caine-led Italian job, Get Carter... And then up to the modern day movies of Guy Ritchie, which are somewhat polarising. And uh, Sexy Beast deviates from a lot of the tropes that are developed in these previous and definitely the subsequent films, but I think that works to its advantage. Crime films have been such a huge part of Britain's cinematic output since the beginning of time, and it dates as far back as 1905 and Cecil Hepworth and Lewin Fitzhammond's short silent film Rescued by Rover, through Hitchcock's first thriller The Lodger, and subsequent films such as Blackmail, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and 39 Steps. But By this point, nothing really encroached upon the gangster genre, which had by the end of World War II been one of the most popular genres in Hollywood for almost two decades. This changed post-war, notably with the very successful Richard Attenborough vehicle Brighton Rock in 1948 and Jules Dussin's Night and the City two years later. You fast forward a couple of years a couple of decades later, and the gangster film is well established as a staple of British cinema. And Michael Caine, as I said, he'd already left a big impressions in a big impression films like Zulu, The Ipcris File, and Alfie. In 1969, he starred in the mega hit The Italian Job. Two years later, he followed that up with Get Carter. A year after that, it was Sleuth, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. And then after that, he went to work predominantly in America. But Caine's work during this period was dissimilar to most of the work he'd done before. He dropped the perfect enunciation of a proper film actor and instead started using regional dialects. And this working class accent allowed American audiences to define the particular style of filmmaking. So British genre suddenly had something to which American audiences could go, ah, that's a British gangster film. Kane's style in these late 60s, early 70s crime films helped to further 
define the genre and it marked these films differently than their American counterparts and there were so many American examples. If we fast forward another couple of decades, by now we've seen huge successes like John McKenzie's The Longwood Friday and Mike Figgis's Stormy Monday. As with everything during the 90s though, output and quality petered off a little bit at the start of the decade, which allowed a few filmmakers to make the genre their own when it was kick-started later in the decade. There was Antonia Bird's Face, which starred Ray Winston and Robert Carlyle. This was followed by Guy Ritchie's Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, starring Vinnie Jones and Jason Statham. And then we get Sexy Beast. It's interesting. I mean, I haven't seen too many Guy Ritchie films, but the couple that I have seen I've found really off-putting. And I think a lot of people have, and that's why I say they're polarising. Well, I find them very claustrophobic in their point of view. I don't respond to the material very often. Certainly, I think Sexy Beast has more in common with Goodfellas than it does The Godfather, where it is sort of the British version of the working class gangster, in the same way that Goodfellas was the American version of the working class gangster. And we don't get the Michael Corleone glamour royalty feeling from these films. I think the majority of British gangster films are working class. That's, that, that is one of the elements that differs from American films. Uh, a lot of American films, they have that accusation labelled against them that they're a glamorisation of mob life. I thought as I was watching the film that Don Logan is almost like a more imposing, frightening version of Kevin Klein in A Fish Called Wanda. <laughs> okay, yeah. You know, because he's just so ballsy and direct and aggressive um, and volatile and shoots before he thinks, which is, you know, the big thing of Kevin Klein. You know, there's that great moment in A Fish Called Wanda where he shoots the safe and she's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, like, I love that. That's such a good line. <laughs> but look, to be honest, Sexy Beast for me... The reason I love it is for the moments that slip around the plot. Mm. I love the scenes of Kingsley trying to convince Gail. And he tries kindness and then violence and then, you know, manipulation and then intimacy. And then he pulls from their friendship and then suddenly he's going to kill him. Peaceful Spain turns into this military training exercise where Gail must dodge a litany of manipulations. You know, to Don, it's just offering an opportunity to an old mate. But to Gail, it's like going to war without armour because he's left his armour back in London. My absolute favourite scene or a couple of scenes from Sexy Beast, no question, are the airport scenes. Okay. Love them, love them. And I loved the close-up of Ben Kingsley uh, <laughs> as he makes up a story yeah. about being sexually assaulted by a flight attendant, which, by the way, is more topical now than it was 18 years ago. You could imagine more than ever an airport going, let him go. We do not want this getting out. Have you ever been sexually assaulted? No, neither have I until today on that plane. What? Yeah, that's what I said. Here's me, put my bag up in the cupboard. Next thing you know, off your hands on me. Someone's touched me, touched my front, my front bottom. I can't believe it, I've gone all cold. I look round, he's standing there, isn't he? That steward with the guilty look on his face. I was shocked, I didn't know what to say. I'd sit down, I wasn't that perturbed. And then his mate, the other one, who's given us all lessons on what we do for landing the sea, how to work your life jacket, etc., he starts snoring, starts looking at me, all funny, suggestive. Now, I don't know whether they wanted me for a twos-up or something, I don't know how they work it, but I'll tell you what, it scared me, I was shaking like a leaf. So, without thinking, I lit up a cigarette to calm my nerves. I was trembling. I was very emotional. And that's when all the rest of it happened. It's very regrettable. Now, I don't want to kick up a fuss. Right? Press charges. Contact the British Embassy. I'd rather not pursue those channels. It's not my style. I'm not that sort of a bloke. I wouldn't want to lose the man his job. 
Man's got a week. And I'm sure he's not representative of all you Spanish people. But I would appreciate it if you have a word with him. Let him know he's been rumbled. It's the one with the ginger ear. I know, and it gave me a great idea if that ever happens to me. I mean, I'm just going to copy what he said. I mean, these days, the angry mob are lighting their torches and storming the village before they have a shred of proof. So... Yes, they are. And we, we know that because we got engaged in a, in a Twitter argument with uh, <laughs> someone about Woody Allen the other day. I, I agree with you. Sexy Beast subverts that genre immediately, and that's because it includes an unwilling participant, which is something that's so foreign to most gangster films. Everybody wants to do this. Everybody wants to rise up the ranks. The typical gangster film you start at the bottom and you move to the top gal has been a criminal and we don't see that we never see it we only hear it and now he wants no more of it if don logan never showed up like i said this would have been a love story instead the lead does not seek the life of crime which takes away from that supposed glamorization of crime as the av club put it in an article eight years after the film's release part of what separates sexy beast from other films in the crime genre is that gal has actually achieved the retirement that's so elusive to other movie hoodlums he feels no compulsion to continue rolling the dice until they inevitably come up snake eyes it's so true i mean i think one of the important things about sexy beast is that it really does put the phony into the phony glamour of the gangster gal and diddy have rejected the spoils of that life there's little traces of it you know gal's jewelry is a little too gaudy you know you can see like little remnants look certainly i think retiring to spain living in that villa being poolside he's certainly living a great life as a result of what he's done in the past yeah but you know there's no cocaine parties there's no sexual looseness there's no macho displays of mandem i mean these are just two couples who could essentially just be a retired upper middle class couple from any walk of life and their interaction with each other is is really quite lovely i mean yeah. I, I love the relationship between gal and h gal and dd jackie i mean i think is a little less of an explored character for me mm. and i would like to see more of her so I, I didn't feel like i got to know her i got to know enough about h just through you know a couple of scenes that he's in i love how the film just slowly breaks down this facade of their new life and you start to slowly see where they've come from you know you slowly find out that Gal went to prison. You slowly find out that Dee Dee was a porn star. And so they don't look like conventional ex-mob people. They just look like very attractive, middle-aged couple. But then all of those walls slowly come down as Don comes in and then, you know, we find out who they really were. One of the most beautiful cuts is when Don is talking to Gal about, you know, the adult films and they call her Wednesday Wank and it keeps cutting back to her overhearing them in bed. And she looks so vulnerable in that moment because you realise that this is a woman who's kind of been running from something that I guess now she's ashamed of. For him to be able to come in and just talk about her that way in her home to her husband while she can hear, it's very harsh. Another subversion of the genre is the fact that there is this love story and therefore the roles of women are so central to the film's development uh, of both plot and character. One of only two killers in the film, one of only two killers who actually perform an on-screen death is female. That is a subversion of the genre in itself. You know, the fact that Gal makes that phone call from London back to Dee Dee and he says something like... uh, I'm stronger because of you. I wrote that line down. I love that line. It's, I know you love me because I feel strong. That's it. And that's exactly how you feel when, you know, when you you argue with your partner. Mm. 
and then suddenly you feel weaker because you don't have their support. It's like, oh, we're not on good terms right now. I can't just call them. I can't call them and tell them I'm scared or I'm worried or I need your help. That's just such a beautiful, beautiful line from the movie. It might it might almost be my favourite line, although there are some pretty good singers from Don that would compete. Certainly up there. And in terms of the love story, that's just a really beautiful, evocative line. Mm. And coming from Ray Winston, and we'll talk about that again later, but coming from Ray Winston, who's this hard man of British acting, it's just phenomenal that he he has uh, put himself in this role. Again, that's another subversion of the genre, the way that Winston and and Kingsley, or the the roles that they take. I mean, Kingsley obviously is famous at this point for playing these really noble figures from history, like Gandhi and um, Isaac Stern from Schindler's List. So it is just wonderful subversion of the audience's expectations to kind of flip them. Mm. Film theorist named Steve Chibnall wrote about British gangster films in the 2000s and he makes a distinction between gangster light and gangster heavy. Gangster light is about films that are non-realistic with glib, fast-paced dialogue and black humour and they're like examples of Snatch and Layer Cake. Gangster heavy, on the other hand, are films with a dramatic focus, so natural dialogue, weighty themes and a sense of social realism. Sexy Beast falls into the gangster heavy category, even though it's very funny and at times very glib and a little too scripty, but it's also very tense. It's very real and it takes its characters seriously and it gives them substance and weighty conflicts. When I read that, I'm thinking, well, perhaps the problem for me is that I'm just not drawn to gangster light. Perhaps I'm just drawn to gangster heavy. Gangster light, I suppose, would fall closer to like black comedy territory, which I love black comedies, but I need there to be gravitas and grit in them. If they're kind of just frothing over all the horrors of the story, then I'm probably not going to be as gripped as I am by something like Sexy Beast. It's the character development, it's the interplay between the characters that makes this film so strong. The heist is not the strong point of this film. It's really well done, but it feels like an afterthought. That's another subversion of the genre is that the heist goes well. It It goes perfectly well. In fact, his life falls apart before that. In a lot of gangster films, it's that kind of heist, the caper, which is where everything goes wrong. And the person who's going to do that usually takes two or three minutes to be convinced of taking this one last job but in sexy beast it turns that around it takes an hour to try to convince him he still doesn't want to do it but he does it and it's like 15 minutes for the heist and the heist it's sort of peripheral to the main the main tension in the story which is is gal going to get away with don's murder so i mean the heist is sort of just like this thing that he has to do the real thing he has to do is convince everybody that Don called him from the airport on Friday. That's the last that he heard from him. He doesn't know anything else. And another thing that happens during the heist is that the one thing... He, he knows he's not going to leave there with a percentage of the takings. So the one thing he takes is the earrings for Dee Dee. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Which you see her wearing in one of the last shots of the movie. So until the Spanish climax, no weapon is held in anger against another character in this movie. I did, but I mean, it doesn't matter because Don's so verbally aggressive that you get the feeling he could turn at any time. Words are weapons, but in a typical gangster film, weapons are rife throughout. I mean, there's rarely weapons in this movie. And that's what I mean. The first hour isn't really a gangster film. It's just a a film film with gangsters in it. Yeah. Not this fucking time. No! No, 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 no! No! No, 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 no! No! Not this fucking time! No fucking way! No fucking way! No fucking way! No fucking way! You made me look a right cunt! Just before we move on to talking a little bit more about Ray Winston and Ben Kingsley and the roles that they play in this movie, Andrew Nettie for Pulp Curry, which is an online magazine, he called Sexy Beast the last good British gangster film. 
He said, Every single British gangster film since Sexy Beast has been a tired rehashing of the so-called heyday of the British gangster film. I include in this category Gangster Number 1, Layer Cake, and the wave of imitation films made in the wake of Guy Ritchie's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and Snatch. The latter of which are entertaining enough, but are largely pastiches, an homage to Britain's so-called lost underworld culture. It takes more than violence, interspersed with a bit of old-school criminal slang, a sunken lounge here and there, some shag pile, and a few artfully placed Trechikov prints to make a good crime film. (laughs) That's interesting. You miss it, girl. I say, what, England? Nah, fucking place. It's a dump. Don't make me laugh. Grey, grimy, sooty. What a shithole. We'd like to welcome now Brian Eggert, who's the writer and editor of Deep Focus Review. Thanks for coming on to our show, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me, Luke and Damien. Now, for those who are unaware, Deep Focus Review is an excellent website that takes an in-depth look at movies uh, from new releases all the way back through the decades. And Brian has written a particularly compelling article about Sexy Beast, which is why he's here joining us on the show. Uh, you can access this at deepfocusreview.com and we'll give you a link in the show notes directly to that article as well. So, Brian, you started Deep Focus Review just over a decade ago. So how did that come about? I had started blogging when I was uh, just after I graduated college in 2006. And I had started, you know, just like a like a blogger site to write about movies and realized that I really enjoyed it and wanted to make it sort of a full-time hobby and that's what I did. I invested in launching a site and have been uh, working on it since uh, early 2007. Sexy Beast you wrote about uh, quite a while after it was released in 2014 uh, and it was part of your series The Definitives which you say are your personal favorite films. When did you first see the movie? I saw it in the theater. I think it was 2000 or maybe 2001 when it hit the US. I wasn't quite sure how to take it the first time. It it had come out of this sort of post Danny Boyle, post Quentin Tarantino, post Guy Ritchie era of the late 1990s and and early 2000s and it seemed very much of that ilk to me and it was kind of confusing because you know you usually associate those types of movies with a lot of flashy crime and a lot of gunplay and Sexy Beast wasn't that even though it was clearly appealing to that audience even though I was sort of confused by it when I first saw it because it didn't fit completely into that realm I kept returning to it and I just sort of learned to love it over after watching it three or four times I was always compelled back to it so you obviously saw it before he'd made Jonathan Glazer had made Birth or uh, under the skin yeah he's only made three films and so he wasn't really like a name that i would associate with sexy beast at, at the time even when birth came out you know thinking about that experience with birth it's like it's almost two different filmmakers uh, birth is such a controlled stylistically you know austere movie and so is under the skin sexy beast is such a flashy playful movie that is very different for him he's very much experimenting in this movie and kind of finding his way there's sort of a unpolished playfulness i guess with this movie that i think works well for what 
it's about, given that Gal is sort of this unpolished character who's sort of confident in the way that he is, and this movie is just sort of confident in the way that it is, despite having sort of these rough-around-the-edges stylistic touches. Yeah, that's uh, probably one of my favourite things about Sexy Beast is that, I mean, it's a very well-made film, but it has a few more stylistic flourishes that are, I guess, a little less focused than his later films. You know, I really loved Birth, but I really hated Under the Skin, and Luke and I I differ on that. Um, But I, I do notice that 2014, when you wrote this article, would have been the year after Under the Skin was released. So at that point, I guess you were more aware of Jonathan Glazer as a director. Do you think that the playful nature of Sexy Beast that was somewhat missing from his later films made you re-examine Sexy Beast or made you appreciate it more? Under the Skin actually didn't make it to, to Minnesota until I published this article, maybe the, the week of Under, Under the Skin coming out. For me, I think Under Under the Skin is his best movie. In advance of this, uh, yes, I, I had gone back and I went and wrote a review of Birth, and uh, I had revisited this several times over the years, as I said, and there are lots of stylistic touches. Like, there's a sequence where he's putting a camera on a, on a revolving door or putting a camera on a car door, which are things that you've seen in probably Guy Ritchie movies or you've seen in other crime movies, I'm sure. And these are kind of just meaningless touches that don't really, at least for me they don't have a have a like a metaphorical purpose within the movie whereas there are other things like when teddy is walking down the street and he's thinking about how they're going to carry out the robbery and the camera goes into his head as if to show him what we're seeing and it's literally like the camera has burst through his head and is going through sort of the cgi tunnel into his mind and that's very much a touch that doesn't necessarily mean anything i guess other than being stylistically flashy and it sort of sets up that device being used later in the movie it's kind of this ungainly thing to watch now because it's bad you know early 2000s cgi but at the same time everything is moving so fast in this movie that you kind of just accept it there's not only the examples that you've mentioned but there's also non-linear sequences in the film there's the dream sequences there's the musical interludes there's voiceover i mean there's so many different filmmaking techniques that are in use in sexy beast It's kind of, I don't want to say that it's throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks because it doesn't come across that way. That would infer that I think it's not working and I think it does work. But certainly there is uh, more differing techniques in Sexy Beast in such a short time than he would use later. It's, It's certainly like he honed his craft a lot later on. And that I think that some of this stuff would be from his music video, his advertising days where you are required to use whatever techniques you can to get a story across in such a short amount of time. Right, and I, I think he, you know, he has done inter- or did interviews at the time saying that, uh, and has done interview- interviews since, where he called it sort of a testing ground to see what he could get on the screen. And even though, like you said, it, it does sometimes have the impression like he's just testing things out and seeing what works, I think everything works, even though maybe I can't intellectually explain why it's important to have a camera mounted on a car door, it works. Or why there's a suddenly a dream sequence where, you know, Gal is floating in the sky above, above you know, his Spanish hacienda with his, his wife. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why that's happening, but it works, and I'm endeared toward that moment. Uh, sorry, Brian, I was but, just going to say, I think you're absolutely right about the, these, especially the technique of going into Teddy's mind. 
you it does sort of feel like almost flashiness for the sake of flashiness and it does date the film a little I feel like Birth and Under the Skin are very clear evolutions of, you know, his, his style and his technique. And, I mean, he's still got that exuberance because the stories are so unusual, but they're kind of tempered by a maturity and by kind of like self-editing. Like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do this. I guess even if you look, and I'm looking at this mother poster, so obviously in my head, you know, Darren Aronofsky is coming up, but... His his first couple of movies, Pie and Requiem for a Dream, were so heavy on this kind of stuff that obviously by the time Black Swan rolled around, he was he was better at his craft. It was less pronounced, mm. and I think that's something that has happened with Jonathan Glazer as well. That's a great point, and Luke, to your point that there's a uh, there's an exuberance in the filmmaking in Birth and Under the Skin. When I think about Under the Skin, the most exciting... A lot of people found it boring, but for me, that's a very exciting movie. There are those scenes where uh, Scarlett Johansson is on the streets and interacting with real people, and just kind of knowing that they're real people and that they didn't really know that they were talking to Scarlett Johansson at the time, and uh, you know they're speaking in a, in a thick Scottish accent that is you can barely understand. Those scenes are filled with such an energy that you get kind of an experiment, like a controlled experimentation that he's doing. And I think that's kind of what's going on in Sexy Bees. It's a, it's a controlled experimentation that works really well with the narrative just because the narrative is very unconventional uh, for the British gangster film. We both think that the relationship between Gal and Dee Dee is uh, just really sensational. Typically, I mean, at least historically, gangster movies, especially British gangster movies, are more about the individual existing within the criminal underworld world and especially in british gangster movies it is something that's sort of under the surface and unseen they're doing things that are i guess at least in the u.s like when, when i think of a, a u.s gangster film it's very much either glorifying or, or condemning a way of life you're glorifying let's say like in the early 1930s hollywood gangster films these are stories that are showing the rise and fall of gangsterism because gangsterism is a problem, right? There's there's prohibition going on, and this is something that people are very excited about, and they want prohibition to stop because they want alcohol, and so the gangsters are sort of heroes in a way, and culture Hollywood culture needs to react because of government pressure, so they need to tell stories that both showcase gangsterism and why it's bad, and have a moral lesson in there in order to show audiences that are very, they see the gangster as sort of a, a folk hero, kind of a rebel that is providing them with a substance that they can't get because their government won't get it to them. By contrast, you have the British gangster who is this entity that is doing things like racketeering, prostitution, it's gambling, protection, stuff like that. These elements are taking place sort of unseen in British culture. And so when they start making movies about it, it's this... Thing that is not ideal. It's very much about the individual and their experience in that underworld. It's exposing that underworld. I've been thinking about this title actually a lot lately, and uh, since we talked about doing this interview, I just sort of recently came about the realization that it's about Gail sort of shedding the beast of the sexy beast of the title. So you have that first shot or that first sequence where he's standing at the poolside and he steps over the lawn chair and the frame freezes. He is the sexy beast and his leg is kind of hung over the chair and the title comes up and throughout the course of the story he needs to sort of shed that beast quality 
and so he's just sort of sexy at the end of it and there's not really a beast or gangster quality to him anymore and there are so few british films british gangster films that are about someone who just wants to get out most of the british gangster films that i've seen from get carter to the long good friday going back to all the way to bright rock are about people who are just existing within that world and sexy beast is rare because it's about someone who definitely wants to get out of that world uh and that's one very appealing aspect of it for me you're absolutely right about that that most of these movies uh, even if it's only maybe the first or second act but there's usually always a part of the film that romanticizes that lifestyle. In Sexy Beast, we get the inverse. We get Gail, uh, Gail's lifestyle, which is now free of the gangster stuff, as looking very, very lovely and seductive and warm. And, you know, they're essentially just like, have become like an upper middle class couple vacationing in Europe, or not vacationing, retiring in Europe. The gangster side of it is all represented for the longest time by Don. And he's just this like infantile, desperately insecure, pitiable, a uh, sexually oppressed, aggressive loser. And so it, it's almost like the gangster life, it, it looks kind of pitiable next to Gal's life. Gal looks like the mature one, like he's graduated, like he's evolved. There's a, an appealing aspect to Gal's lifestyle because it's very open, very comfortable with itself. There are none of these sort of oppressive factors that are that are playing into his life that and that are all sort of representative of the gangster lifestyle. And those are all represented as dangerous as well. Whereas mm -hmm. everything that's going on around Gal, aside from the sort of symbolic giant boulder that, that comes down in the first scene, his life otherwise is, is pretty easygoing and pretty open talking about Dee Dee and Gal and their relationship and how endearing it is. It's endearing because it's so open. You know, Don Logan, when he first sees him, he really tearing into Gal about the way that he looks. Don Logan tears into Dee Dee's past, Jackie's past. Dee Dee used to be a porn star and used to presumably be kind of passed around in the criminal underworld. And he's got a very low view of sort of open sexuality. When he talks about Jackie to uh, Gal at the bar in Spain, he tells the story about how Jackie tried to stick her fingers in his anus and he's very opposed to that. Whereas you get the impression that none of this really matters to Gal. He could care less about Dee Dee's past. Uh, he could care less about what Jackie does in the bedroom. They're just happy to kind of exist and the more dangerous a person is, the less open to just being happy, I guess, someone is in this movie. Like, even Teddy, he's a dangerous guy, but he's not so dangerous. He's, he's pretty understanding about Gal, and I think that is reflected in part in his sexuality and his open sexuality. He's a character who, you know, he goes to an orgy and is seemingly open to both sexes, engaging in bisexual acts. And anybody who isn't like that maybe isn't cool uh, and doesn't fit the, the kind of the gangster, this unspoken gangster code whereas don logan is not cool he is a reserved and angry and like you said very insecure guy who is opposed to the sort of open lifestyle and it makes him maybe it makes him angry that uh, he can't have it you know there's that scene where he's he's in the bathroom and he's looking at himself uh, as he's shaving and this is presumably happening happening in the middle of the night when he's still up and decides to shave and pees on their on their bathroom floor and kind of works himself up into a into this sort of angry, frustrated rage and runs into their bedroom and starts beating on them. These kind of actions are just... They're so weird for the gangster genre, you know, and which is why I'm... So, 
almost sort of hesitant lately to to consider this a British gangster film in any traditional way because this is a guy who's just sort of an unstable psychological presence in the criminal underworld. Brian, you were talking about doing some more academic publications and I understand you might be working on something at the moment. Can you give us some insight into that? In addition to just kind of submitting to scholarly journals and stuff in the next year, I'm working on a book about pre-Pearl Harbor anti-Nazi cinema, so movies that had a, kind of an anti-fascist message, at least in Hollywood, that were prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor. These are movies that I think are, especially in today's political climate, where every you know fascism seems to be rearing its head again, and it's very scary, and you wonder what you can do and what Hollywood is doing. Looking at these movies like uh, The Great Dictator or Foreign Correspondent or Manhunt, by Fritz Lang, if you've ever seen that. They're all taking a grand step against what they believe is something that's wrong. And that's very inspiring to me as opposed to the films that came after. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm a big fan of Charlie Chaplin and love The Great Dictator. So I'm really interested to read more about that. Yeah, it's kind of surprising how divisive that movie can be because it's a movie with a message people tend not to like it. And it's definitely a movie with a message. I mean, it has quite a stunning monologue in it. Yeah, that last five or ten minutes there is just a big, long monologue. And it, <laughs> it may dramatically stop the movie to a halt uh, or bring the drama to a halt, but I think at the time that was something that was... You know, people were sending out Christmas cards with Chap's speech on it, which is interesting. <laughs> wow, yeah. So, yeah, as I said before, you can find Brian's work on Deep Focus Review, which is at deepfocusreview.com. And as I said, we'll provide a direct link in our show notes, as well as a link to Brian's essay on Sexy Beast. And if you appreciate his work, you can check out Deep Focus Review on Patreon for some extra exclusive Patreon-only work. And I assume, Brian, that people can connect with you on all the usual social channels as well? Yeah, I'm at Deep Focus Review on Twitter and at Deep Focus Review on uh, Facebook. Feel free to reach out on Patreon. If you join on Patreon, I'll even like write a review of your request, depending on the level that you join, so you can request a review and I'll dig into it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been interesting. I've only done a few of them so far, but I went from writing about In Harm's Way, the John Wayne war movie, to The Toxic Avenger, to Cake from 20, 2014 that I missed. And it's been quite a, quite a ride. Thank you so much for joining us, and I'm sure that we'll have you back on a future episode as well. I look forward to it. So this is a Spanish villa, is it? Yeah, this is it. The old hacienda. Bit remote, innit? Bit cut off. No, it's perfect, Don. It's just how we like it. Do you want to have a look round? Yeah, I will in a minute when I have a piss. Ray Winston, like I said before, he'd long been cast as a hard man from Alan Clark's Scum in 1979. There was Gary Oldman's Nil by Mouth in 1997 and Tim Ross' The Warzone in 1999. Not to mention later on in life, he was in the best picture winning The Departed a decade later as Jack Nicholson's right-hand man. And then Ben Kingsley, on the other hand, like you said just moments ago, was best known for his uh, Oscar-winning lead role in Richard Attenborough's Gandhi and his sympathetic performance in Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. They have reversed those roles completely. I I watched Nil by Mouth recently. Ray Winston in that movie is really despicable human being. He is, you know, and that's the role that he had played beforehand. Ben Kingsley, like you said, that that is just his bread and butter is doing those historical roles. I mean, he's perfect for them so bringing them into sexy beast and just completely changing the way that they were it really adds to our reading of the movie i think it does i mean an interesting story i mean the audio commentary on sexy beast 
is a conversation between Jeremy Thomas and Ben Kingsley. And I think Ben Kingsley approached this role with some trepidation for that very reason. I think he was nervous about doing something so different. Apparently the first scene with Ray Winstone that they shot, I think after the first take, Ray Winstone said to him, you remind me to the letter of this guy that I know in northern London. Mm -hmm. And he, he gave the guy's name, where he lives, the car he drives and everything. And Ben Kingsley said it was such a generous thing for him to do for me as an actor because Ray Winstone is so good at playing the role I am now trying to play and he's telling me that my performance has such a specificity and, you know, such an authenticity that it's reminding him of an actual person that he knows. And so it sort of set him off on good grounding. Ben Kingsley also said that uh, he never really broke character and in the audio commentary he makes some comment about, oh, I think that little Mexican kid was scared of me. And Jeremy Thomas says, we were all scared of you, Ben. <laughs> so I think, you know, it, he must have just kind of had to keep it. And apparently Kingsley was on another film shoot for the first couple of weeks of the Sexy Beast shoot. I'm not sure what film it was. But he um, was not released from leaving that film shoot to go to Sexy Beast. So he rocked up two weeks after filming had already started. He said that if it had gone a day later, that the production would have been in serious trouble. They would have maybe had to recast because he was just contractually obligated to whatever he was doing in in the States. Mm. I'm not familiar with Ray Winstone's work, and I've never seen Neil by Mouth. I have seen him in The Departed and Noah, and that's really it. So for me, none of that informed my my analysis of his performance. I think he's great in this film. I think he's just really touching and beautiful. He brings such a humanity, such a quiet reserve. You know, it... It shocked me when I heard that Ray Winstone is known for being these big, brash personalities because in this film he's so quiet and gentle and introspective. I think the boulder and the bunny rabbit, those kind of big splashes of feeling contrast really well with sort of this very restrained meditative performance that he gives, you know, because he doesn't let let a lot of that tumult in his performance. So to have these kind of visual metaphors that are kind of juxtaposed with it is really, really great. I just want to say about his type in this movie of the reformed gangster, that's such a popular narrative in the gangster film. You know, it's seen in movies like Carlito's Way and A History of Violence. But it goes as far back as George Raft in Invisible Stripes in 1939. Even in the first Godfather movie, Michael consciously rejects the family business but soon finds himself helplessly drawn back into it. I think these stories resonate because our lives are often predicated by circumstance. You know, there's inherent truth in these kinds of stories and it's just fun to watch them play out on these grandiose scales, you know, of gangster and life or death. And I think that it, that's why it's such an enduring narrative. There's a line, and I think it's in Godfather Part 2, where he says, this is the life we've chosen. It's either Godfather Part 2 or Part 3. I should know the difference. I think it's one of those things that, for these people, they're not movie actors, you know? They're not. These are these are roles that are being represented in movies. It's not as glamorous as you see it on screen. And as with anything in life, if you have fit into this for your entire life, it's hard to break free. You know, and that goes for someone who's, you know, out on the street collecting garbage. It goes for someone who works in retail. It goes for all kinds of professions. Yeah. So it is hard to break free from that kind of thing. And that's why it's so enduring. And that's why you can you can empathise with that. There's a moment in Sexy Beast, I mean, throughout all of his conversations with Don, everything that Gal is saying is mannered. It's very like, what am I going to say to this person 
to get the best possible reaction I can. Throws out the truth. Throws out what he's really feeling. Everything he's saying is a guarded response to somebody who is frightening him, but there's one moment where he doesn't, and it's the moment where uh, Don brings up Dee Dee, and he's kind of staring out. He forgets who he's talking to, and he just says, I love her so much. Ray Winstone is so good at making us understand that that comment is him forgetting that he's talking to Don Logan and just speaking from his truth. And then he slips back into, oh, wait a minute, I'm with Don, I'm with a psycho, I need to navigate this situation. There's another genre of British film that I quickly want to talk about. Basically, in the late 1950s, there was this British new wave movement that began in all forms of art. It was theatre, films, books, television, and it was called kitchen sink realism. And this movement was marked by an overwhelming realism in the depiction of lower-class, so-called angry young men. It showed the trivialities of working-class life, and it was often centred around youth living in cramped rental accommodation, spending their time drinking in pubs. And the plays and movies usually looked at subjects taboo to the previous generation, and that generation was one that gave us the so-called well-made plays, which followed the accepted three-act narrative structure involved plot devices that led to a climax. Kitchen sink dramas did not. They meandered about without rhyme nor reason to explore controversial topics like abortion, homelessness, unemployment, poverty and political unrest. Prime examples from this genre during its decade-long run include 1959's Look Back in Anger, 1961's A Taste of Honey, 1962's The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner, 1966's Alfie, and 1969's Kess. The last of those films was Ken Loach's second cinema release, and Loach himself would become one of the foremost proponents of the realist movement, and he continues making these films to this very day, including one that you and I saw recently, I, Daniel Blake, which is an often heartbreaking look at the welfare system in the UK. One of Loach's realist dramas, which was 1994's Lady Bird, Lady Bird, starred Ray Winston in a supporting role. Winston, at this point in his career, was most famous for Scum, a film about brutality behind bars in a British youth detention centre that was so decried by the government that it was banned. His role in Loach's film led to more in this genre for him, and that's what really allows us to read more in Sexy Beast. In 1997, he starred as the abusive husband in Gary Oldman's directorial debut, Nil by Mouth, for which he won Best Actor at the British Independent Film Awards. Two years later, he starred in Tim Roth's directorial debut, The War Zone, as the violent and sexually abusive father of a teenage girl. And it was these three roles, along with Scum and some other crime thrillers, that gave this view of Winston's characters as hard men, relying upon their fists and their physical dominance for control no matter the cost. And therefore, it's believable that he was a career criminal and a safe cracker in Sexy Beast. But Sinto, Mellis and Glazer, they turn this depiction completely on its head. They, we don't, as I said before, we don't see any of Galdove's past. We know he's a hard man purely because they say he is, and because we know Ray Winston. He's always a hard man. That's his type. We don't need to engage in backstory here. Instead, we use the knowledge of an actor's career to benefit us. And then Glazer uses that to reshape his character. And he does that by introducing us to Don Logan, who strips away all of the bravado and machismo of Gal Dove merely at the mention of his name. Dove is now a lovesick man of leisure who seeks only to please his wife and continue his idyllic life. He actively eschews the criminal career he once sought, and any possibility of violence is now a terrifying prospect. Are you going to do the job? It's not a difficult question. Yes or no? Donna. Say it. No. Yes. Fuck off, wanker. You're doing it. 
Kingsley isn't just terrifying, he's funny. I call this like a funny maniac performance, and I spoke with you a little bit about this off mic. So, you know, laughter is obviously the natural way we relieve tension, which is why filmmakers will often bookend a tense or stressful scene with a joke. We tend as people to try and find the humour in something terrifying so that it's manageable, so that it's less threatening. But the funny maniac performance is very tricky to get right, and I think it's a question of balance. Too scary and we're not going to laugh. Too funny and we're not going to feel the fear. Good examples, I mean, the one that you could probably most closely compare with Kingsley in this film is Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, but you've also got Kathy Bates in Misery, uh, even to an extent Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada. You know, these are very intimidating, frightening, maniacal people people, but there is a levity and a comedy, maybe not a levity, but certainly a comedy to their how they're interpreting the roles. And I think when we laugh at characters through a prism of tension, it makes the joke funnier and it makes the joke more enriching, more rewarding, because it's making us laugh and providing a release from just the general nervousness we feel about seeing this person on screen. By the way, <laughs> I laughed heaps in Sexy Bees, but I laughed the most when Don is shot and he looks down at the wound and he goes, oh my God, I just pissed my, I don't know why, but I found that so funny, his reaction in that moment to being shot. It was just, it was so good. I just loved it so much. I don't really know why. I just thought it was really funny. Did you find uh, anything sexual about Ben Kingsley's performance? No, he's very pitiable. You know, he so badly wants Jackie to look at him. When I think of him, I think of his posture. And his silhouette, because he's got that bald head. So he's got this very defined silhouette and he's always ramrod straight and his ears kind of poke out. And he, even when he comes at that first scene, he's sitting down, you know, in that lounge area. He's so like straight. It's interesting that in his previous roles, that kind of posture, it looked noble. It looked regal. You know, it looked like somebody who had real authority, but kind of benevolent authority. Whereas in this film it makes him look hyper alert and kind of deranged it sort of he sort of sticks out of his shoes like a malevolent spring waiting to be offended waiting to be angry at somebody for some innocuous comment i read that he based this on his grandmother she was an extremely violent and unpleasant woman she was racist fascist anti-semitic when i play great heroic jews and great heroic dark people i'm sticking two fingers up at her when i play don logan i was channeling her it's interesting that a performance that is such a wonderful example of toxic masculinity was based on a woman from his past. He is such a fucked up person, Don Logan, such a fucked up man. He can't even look a goat in the eye without feeling that his alpha male (laughs) status is being threatened. Um, When he sits on the couch, everything he says serves only one purpose, and that is to reassert himself as the dominant energy in the room. He's emotionally blocked. He's highly competitive. These are all characteristics of the hegemonic male. He regards the women in the film only as markers of status for the men they happen to be with. For Don, stealing Jackie away from H is like when a kid steals another kid's trophy because he thinks he deserves it more than the other kid. Any man who behaves this way does so out of deeply rooted insecurity. You know, the reason that we love Gal is because when his gun misfires, he and H just laugh about it because it's like we don't, you know, they don't need to prove anything. Yeah, you know, we're all dopes. We'll have moments where we don't look like the idealised male or female. It's sad that Don tells Gail and Jackie at different points in the film that he loves them, but that he never, ever hears it back. It bothers him that Jackie in particular isn't more receptive to him. You know, she slept with him once three years ago, and he clings to that encounter like a lovesick puppy. He is such an outsider, 
and every conversation with everybody in the film identifies him as the outsider. He wants to be loved, but he expects to be hurt, so he's always on the offensive. And as a result, no one can develop an intimacy with him because you don't know if he's going to say something nice or crack your skull. I mean, you're just trying to survive him. There's no room to feel anything for him other than immense caution. That's uh, the overwhelming feeling that I get from this movie is that they're waiting him out. They're waiting out the storm. They're oh, waiting God. for him to leave. Hopefully they can say enough to get rid of him and they think they have at one point. Great how he just slowly clears the room in that scene and they all end up standing in four different corners of the kitchen not saying anything. Yeah. <laughs> he's just left in the living room. Mm. I mean, it's actually a really, he's really sad. I also read that he played it like somebody who'd been sexually abused and that the culprit had never been brought to justice and now he just abuses everybody around him that you would have to read into that quite a lot to see that but I mean he is just a very sad sad figure he's like a little boy that nobody wants to play with Mm. why did you ask me if I thought he was sexy you're not going to tell me you're attracted to him are you no not at all I just wondered if you found anything sexual about his performance because I think that there is so much sexuality in this movie well no I don't I think that there is definitely a sexual frustration about him for sure. But I don't know that I found his performance erotic or anything like that. I think he's the one who fails to use his sexual powers to his advantage because of all of the things that you've brought up there. That doesn't necessarily happen with the other characters. This is where I get to bring up Teddy Bass, who's played by Ian McShane, and I think most people would know him as the lead actor in Deadwood. He actually first played a gay character in the 1971 film Villain, where he was a lover of the bisexual lead played by Richard Burton. And he'd play a gay character again in Sinto and Mellis' follow-up script, which also starred Ray Winston, which was 2009's 44-inch chest. He's very understated throughout the movie. He's not in it a hell of a lot. He's really only in it for the last half hour, glimpsed before that. But there's definitely a sexual edge to the control he exerts over others in the film. His group of men are willing to do anything for him. Ultimately, Don Logan is willing to die to allow Bass to get into the bank vault and Gal is willing to put his life, idyllic life, at risk and drown in London as well, even though he doesn't, he's not really willing, he just, he actually does do that. He meets the bank manager, Harry, at an exclusive orgy and engages in sexual intercourse with him. You get the feeling that this is purely to gain access to the vault. Not that Teddy is using some sort of feigned homosexuality for that purpose, but rather that Teddy is so willing to use his sexuality, that is to say the way he expresses himself as a sexual being, for profit, trading sex for inside information. The fact that the heist then takes place mostly in a bathhouse, with a cast of only men, is icing on the cake. Of course, bathhouses throughout the world are often used as gay beats, and I think there's clearly some homosexual undertones there. But one of the things that I admire about McShane's portrayal of Bass in Sexy Beast is that his sexuality doesn't define him. I admire that he uses his sexuality for a criminal purpose in as much as you can admire anything a criminal does. This buff world of bravado and violence that he's chosen to inhabit It doesn't diminish him in any way. He doesn't shrink from his sexuality. There's a reason that he's at the top of the heap and it has nothing to do with his homosexuality. It's a non-issue and the inclusion of it in this film is yet another subversion of the British gangster genre. I didn't think he was gay. I thought he was just like a hedonist who's been obscenely wealthy for so long that now nothing short of like perversion of his pleasures is going to give him any kind of thrill. So I thought it was kind of ironic in a Winona Ryder shoplifting kind of way. If you read any interviews with um, McShane, he will readily admit that the character of Teddy was gay. 
in this movie. Ah, interesting. I didn't think there was enough exploration to make a call one way or another. Yeah. I just got the feeling that it was just somebody who had seen it all, smoked it all, done it all, and just now needed something perverse. And to a heterosexual male, homosexual sex would, I guess, be perverse. So he needed something like that to really give him a charge and a kick. He does a good job of not caring for anybody. He says, you know, if I gave even one fuck mm. about Don Logan... And the other thing he does to show that he gives no fucks is he kills Harry. Ray Winston is an actor who is so very rarely sexed up, and for good reason. (laughs) As the AV Club wrote of the opening sequence in this movie, Sexy Beast languishes over Winston's gal as his lotion-slathered frame bakes in the Spanish sun like a suckling over a spit. Oh, good lord. (laughs) I think it's a perfect comparison, and yet there's something sexy about Winston in this shot because of the setting. He has retired to this peaceful sun life on the Spanish coast where he married the love of his life and passes his time sipping cocktails by the pool. That is sexy. That's a sexy vision. It's I've... a sexy lifestyle. It's a sexy lifestyle. He's not yeah. sexy. He's sexualized in that early shot. I thought it was a joke. <laughs> when he got up and he, and he um, does that frame fra- freeze frame yeah. on him like crookedly, awkwardly <laughs> getting up and That's it goes hilarious. sexy beast. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I know he looks, he does look leathery. I mean, Don he says does that to leathery, him. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I didn't see that at all. I just want to compare this quickly to a scene from another film and it's Martin Scorsese's Casino. I'm saying Winston is definitely sexier than Joe Pesci, okay? I think the person Ray Winston is better looking than Joe Pesci. Yes. Yeah, okay. But neither of them are winning any awards in this department. And that opening scene of Sexy Beast, let's just compare that to a sequence in Casino where Pesci gets a blowjob from Sharon Stone's character, who's married to Pesci's childhood best friend played by Robert De Niro. That scene is so entirely unsexy, and it's not just unsexy, it always makes me recoil. Do you know the scene I'm talking about? I find that scene disgusting. And Glazer could have convincingly done that with Winston in this film because it would have been easy enough to do. But he doesn't. He imbues all of the violence swearing men, which is also a good description for Pesci's casino character, with a bluster and sincerity that makes them appealing. They're not hiding anything from us as a viewer. And never is that made more literal than when we stare down at Gal's almost naked body. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's, it's definitely not trying to highlight how unappealing he is. It's a lovely life. It's shot really beautifully. Maybe the reason I didn't find the scene sexualized was because I didn't find him appealing in that way. Although I think he's beautiful and relatable and lovely. And, uh, and you know, I loved him and I was totally in his corner. He's a brilliant talent. But yeah, I I don't know, that's interesting to me that people have interpreted the scene that way. Well, I've always interpreted the scene that way. I mean, the images are I find it strangely erotic. Okay, wow. I I do, I I find Ray Winston at the start of this movie, and of course I find the little Spanish boy, I find them strangely erotic. (laughs) That's gross. (laughs) Do you need me to leave you alone for a couple of minutes? Oh, no. Step Um, outside. But I think also how we read Don Logan's character because we know Ray Winston. I think we do something similar with Gal's sexuality in this film by pairing him with the character of Dee Dee, who is a former porn star. And I think this elevates his appeal. If a porn star is into this man, then there must be something sexy about him. I like that repeatedly in this movie, Sinto and Mellis have layered our reading of each character in this way. It's not just what we see, but what we know from other characters and other films. What we really are attracted to once we get past the sort of superficiality of appearance is the character underneath can become intensely sexy to us. And in that sense, Gal is sexy because he's in command, he's sensible, he's warm, 
and you know he's he's a lovely person and you can see why somebody glamorous like Dee Dee who by the way is at an age where her face has kind of got these hardened lines and everything and so you can kind of see where she's come from in that sense but you can see why he could draw someone like Dee Dee to him yeah it's like when you say people fall in love with people because of their personality yeah <laughs> <laughs> um before we move on to talking a little bit about birth and under the skin uh, do you have anything else that you really want to say about the sexy beast in particular? No, I've led my notes of all of their goodness. Okay, so before we stop talking about sexy beast, and uh, I mean, we'll get cover release and reception, but before we do that, I just want to make mention of Kevin Kendall, who played Gal and Dee Dee's best friend in this film, H. And when you watch it, you may notice that after the cast listing in the end credits, there's a line that dedicates the film to Cavan. And that's because he suffered as his unfortunate demise at the hands of cancer on the 29th of October 1999, which was about eight months after the film wrapped shooting and almost a year before it debuted in cinemas. And Kendall was best known in the UK as a stage actor, but he did have a few other film credits before he did Sexy Beast. The thing that makes Sexy Beast so enjoyable for me to watch is its performances, and I think we've talked about that throughout this podcast. And I think we've talked about a lot about Winston and Kingsley, a little bit about Ian McShane, and I think Kevin Kendall here is almost as good as any of them. He's obviously a supporting character, but one of my favourite scenes in the movie is when uh, Gal has returned to Spain at the end of the movie. He's laying in the pool, and H is reciting a story to Dee Dee and Jackie about a pill that leaves your hair in a state of stasis. Jackie's laughing at him and says, well, what if you want to change it one day? And he says, ah, well, that's where the antidote comes in. It's such an incredible story in that it's difficult to believe, but he plays it so straight, and H has zigzagged emotionally from Gal's happy-go-lucky best mate to a withering coward who's berated by Don not to look at him. The return of his smile actually means something in this shot. It means that that threat has gone and that the happiness has returned, even if the words he's speaking at that moment mean nothing. And I did just want to make mention of Kendall's performance uh, I find him really enjoyable in Sexy Beast and I think it's such a shame that he never got to see the finished product that is sad yeah he is really great now Luke I know you prefer birth to Sexy Beast yeah, very much so. Birth and Under the Skin are natural progressions of this film. Both concern themselves far more centrally with the human experience in a way that is more in keeping with Glazer's sensibilities. I think with Sexy Beast, he was able to assert his style within the framework of a gangster film, which is commercially viable. It's almost like a bit of insurance for a first-time filmmaker. But with his subsequent two films, I feel like he really comes into his own. And for me, Birth is his best film, easily. I agree with you. It is like a little bit of insurance for a first-time filmmaker, isn't it? Mm. Uh, And especially cashing in on a genre that's so big at the time. I mean, Guy Ritchie's Lockstock came out in 1998, so a couple of years prior to when Sexy Beast would eventually come out. Uh, So it's, uh, it's natural that even though he was looking at Gangster Number 1, before that, it's natural that uh, he would be drawn to a genre that was kind of hot for his first movie. You can't imagine Birth getting financed without... Mm. Sexy Beast. I think it would have been hard with Sexy Beast. Yeah. But uh, certainly without it, I I don't think you could start with birth. I didn't watch either of these films again prior to us recording this episode, so my memory may be a little hazy. You were originally the one that showed me birth, by the way. Uh, I remember the controversy surrounding that movie when it was released, which astounded me after I first saw the film. Uh, It's such an honest and emotional depiction of loss and love. 
and it stuns me that people saw anything untoward in this film, uh, let alone enough to make accusations of improper conduct, conduct on behalf of the filmmakers or Nicole Kidman, and specifically I'm talking about the bath scene. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, when the film came out, that was uh, all anyone was really interested in. That was all you heard. You watch the scene and it goes by and you're not even... Was that the scene that everyone... You know, it's like that, you know? The scene isn't sexual. No. The scene actually is um, Nicole Kidman's character realising the conundrum that she is in. She now believes that this young boy is her reincarnated husband to come back. But what is she going to do? Because she's sitting naked in a bathtub with 11, 12-year-old prepubescent boy so how is she going to deal with this it's not like she's sitting there looking at him lustily thinking oh turns out i'm a pedophile it's very odd and i mean the film is just stunning you know it's a look at grief through this beautiful lens of mystification with this idea of the reincarnated boy starts out on this stunning shot a bird's eye shot of her husband and he's walking through this sort of snow dappled park and this beautiful music that comes in with these really um, rich strings and then we see him collapse and have a heart attack. It's just a stunning opening to a film. And then it's got this amazing two-minute sequence where after she realises, immediately after she realises that he is her husband and she realises it because he collapses when she asks him to leave her alone. And then she's just raced into this opera and she sits down, the camera goes up on her face as we watch her slowly break down all of the ideas she's had about life and start to accept something impossible. And it's one of the most stunning pieces of acting I've ever seen. You can't take your eyes off her face. It's always been one of my favourite films. I mean, we always go into spoilers, so if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, um, just stop listening for the moment. But the final scene of Birth with um, Nicole Kidman in the middle of being t- getting photographs on her wedding day, runs down to the ocean where she first met her former husband and she's just screaming and the waves are lapping at her feet and she's staring at this horizon, this enormous horizon of the ocean. It's almost like she's screaming at, at life and how frightening life is. And her husband comes up and he whispers something in her ear that we don't hear and then he just slowly drags her back into her new life. Uh, it's shivers and it's the kind of uh, ending that doesn't let you get out doesn't let you get out the movie just sort of stains your mind after that for about 48 hours because of the note that it leaves you on I I just think it's a a tremendous piece of film I couldn't recommend it enough like I, I, I absolutely love it I think one day it'll be in my top 20 films of all time that's a huge call. I think it's an excellent film. From memory, I'd probably end up giving it about four and a half stars if I was to rewatch it now. It's far more streamlined vision than Sexy Beast is, uh, which isn't to say that Sexy Beast isn't streamlined, because I think it is, but Birth succeeds without a lot of the filmmaking techniques present in his debut. And I think that always makes for a much stronger film, and especially one that ends up dating far less. And the performances in Birth are another strong point of that movie. Now, I don't feel anywhere near the same about <laughs> Under the Skin. Is this uh, where we have a on-mic fight? No, because I don't know that the film will care about it enough to, to fight that much, but I hated it. I think I gave it a star when I watched it a few years ago. That's ridiculous. I just thought it was pointless and abstract for the sake of being different. Uh, it was very beautiful, but images alone don't make a good film. And I really disliked it. And I was very upset about that as I had loved his previous two films, Sexy Beast and Birth. And I really liked Scarlett Johansson. So I felt in uh, Under the Skin that Glazer had reverted to trickery and went overboard with it. 
and it's like uh, one long music video without the music to get you through. No, I think Under the Skin is brilliant. Uh, I think it's a really unusual film that looks very directly at the importance of empathy and how our survival as a species hinges upon social interaction and community structures and empathy. It does do it in a very oblique way. Uh, you know, you could argue that this is a film about Scarlett Johansson picking guys up in a car. Then it occasionally cuts to this strange place with black goo. That's a, that's how I'd describe the movie, yeah. <laughs> and also one long scene of Scarlett Johansson walking down a road. What's alarming about the film is that we see Scarlett Johansson with nothing on her face. Nothing on her face. And then suddenly a guy approaches the car and she's got a personality. And then... Once she gets rid of them, she goes back to blank face. And so you become very aware of how personality is something that becomes imprinted on us and that for us as people it happens naturally. We make natural choices about who we are. But for, I suppose, an alien who's in a human skin, the idea that you are blank and then you aren't and you're like switched on and off like a light, it's very frightening. And there's a scene at the beach where I think she watches a, a couple of divers um, drown and then a baby is left screaming and she just goes past the baby and it's not because she's cruel, it's because she's not human. I mean, that's such an interesting idea. I mean, look, yeah, it's a challenging movie. It's an interesting movie. I love I love the scene where she falls down and she realises she's cut herself and she experiences pain and blood for the first time. I love when she sits down at a restaurant and so desperately wants to experience the pleasure of eating because she sees it all around her, but she ends up choking on a piece of cake that she's eaten. I... I just think it's unique. I don't think there's another film like it, and I absolutely loved it. Did you give it five stars? I think I gave it four. Four, okay. So, I mean, I probably liked it as much as Sexy Beast Mm. and not as much as Birth. So tell us about the release of Sexy Beast and how it was received. All right. (laughs) Sexy Beast premiered at the 2000 Toronto International Film Festival on the 13th of September. It was picked up by Fox Searchlight Pictures. It opened in the UK four months later alongside Castaway, which was this mega hit. Came in at number 13 at the UK box office with a weekend gross of 150,000. Rose to number nine for a fortnight, which is interesting. It must have been word of mouth before dropping out of the top 10 under the weight of new releases like What Women Want and Vertical Limit. It had an extremely staggered international rollout that took two years, finishing up with $10 million gross. So not a hit by any means, but it did recoup its costs and it at least put Glazer on the map as director worth looking out for. Critics received the film favourably. They praised Louis Mellis and David Shinto's sharp-tongued screenplay, Glazer's crisp direction and Ben Kingsley's career-bending turn. Roger Ebert's three-and-a-half-out-of-four-star review is largely a love letter to the actor. He wrote, Kingsley's performance has to be seen to be believed. He's angry, seductive, annoyed, wheedling, fed-up, ominous and out-of-his-mind-with-frustration. I didn't know Kingsley had such notes inside him. Obviously, he can play anyone. Eddie Cockrell saw the film at Toronto and reviewed it for IndieWire. He wrote, Director Jonathan Glazer looks at the now ubiquitous ironic approach with a genuinely fresh eye. There's often a spacey, non-linear approach to pace and rhythm, creating a palpable sense of unpredictability that meshes nicely with the erratic tempers of these ruthless characters. Some critics didn't vibe with it as much. Variety called it massively uneven. Joshua Katzman of the Chicago Reader wrote that aside from Glazer's visual flair and gallows humour, he has still subtracted much more than he's added. Award recognition predictably centred around Kingsley 
his performance. He was nominated for a SAG, Golden Globe, Best Supporting Actor Oscar, but he lost to Jim Broadbent for his work in Iris. Sexy Beast currently holds an 83% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. In August 2018, Paramount Pictures announced that they were developing a TV series which will act as a prequel to Sexy Beast and tell the story of an up-and-coming criminal, Gal Dove, as he forms a partnership with Don Logan, starts working for criminal mastermind Teddy Bass, and meets and falls in love with his future wife, Dee Dee. So we'll have to keep our eyes peeled for that one. And I believe that is uh, written still by Cinto and Mellis? Yeah, they're involved. Hmm. So that'll be interesting. It should be good. Well, we'll see. Yeah, (laughs) you can never tell. Ready for a quiz? I am. Okay. I'll ask you a question, okay? Go for it. So just to demonstrate exactly how strong the character of Don Logan is in Sexy Beast, all of my quiz questions this month have to do with him. Oh, God. He's your favourite part of this movie, Luke, so I'm hoping you've done your homework. (laughs) Who did Ray Winston originally show the script to in hopes that he would play the role of Don Logan? Um, Gary Oldman? Very good. Oh, thank God. And he had directed Winston in Nil by Mouth? What was the rock made of that was hurled down onto Ray Winston? As in, what kind of boulder was it, or what was it actually made of? What was it actually made of? Uh, it was actually made of... Uh, oh, what's that stuff? What's that, what's that stuff? Like? What's that foam? Fiberglass. Oh, so close. That was quite dangerous, actually. Winston himself was originally looking at playing Don Logan after being offered the role by Glazer. Uh, what character trait was he going to give Logan? Tourette syndrome. Yeah, we read the same page. I've done my research. <laughs> I read many a page. Yeah, the idea was nixed by the uh, producers, I guess. What was the first scene shot in the film? The first scene shot in the film was outside the Grosvenor Hotel. It was the dinner scene. Yeah, look, I was guessing. Oh. But I sounded really sure I of was myself, like, didn't I? Do I have to check my notes? <laughs> it was the dinner scene where they find out Don is coming to Spain. Producer Jeremy Thomas on the audio commentary says that he was just amazed that Glazer could do such a complicated scene first round. Interesting. Mm. Which Oscar-winning role in 2014 was by an actor playing against type inspired by Kingsley's against type performance in Sexy Beast? Oh, fucking hell. 2014, Oscar-winning role against type. I'm not going to get this. I'm not good at thinking like this this early in the morning. (laughs) It's after midday, Luke. No, I don't know. Uh, J.K. Simmons in Whiplash. I did know that. Who producer Jason Reitman had previously cast as the loving father in Juno. So what are we on? Uh, You're on two. I'm on zero. (laughs) So So you've won. Okay, good. (laughs) But I can't go out with a big old goose egg, so read me another one. What role did Ben Kingsley land thanks to his portrayal of Don in Sexy Beast? House of Sand and Fog? No, uh, Mandarin, the the villain in Iron Man 3. Oh, shit, I've got that as a question on my fucking page here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, that's funny. That was ridiculous. So, Luke, how many stars do you give Sexy Bees? Look, I'm going four out of five. I think it's a a really great film. There's a couple of little things I changed. To me, it feels like a, a Jonathan Glazer who's not quite yet formed. So in the light of films like Birth and Under the Skin, I couldn't really give it more than four. I give it four and a half. And I think I have always just loved this movie. I love the simplicity of this movie. That's what keeps drawing me back to it. If you've never seen it, it's such a quick and easy 90 minutes to get through. And the dialogue makes it all worthwhile. Luke, it is stinking hot in here and I am sweating like a cunt. So why don't you tell us what we're going to be doing next? 
By the way, you're not beeping out all our words. Yes. No, I think we just put a warning on it. So next month we're going to be joined by a special guest, Cassandra Kane, and we're going to be looking at James Bridges' 1979 disaster thriller film, The China Syndrome. Excellent. Can't wait. Yeah, it should be good. We've also got another special episode in the works, and we're going to be talking to a special guest, so stay tuned for that. I don't want to announce it yet. We'll wait until we've uh, recorded it and got it uh, in the can, and then we'll uh, release it, and we hope you enjoy it. Please rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. That helps us a lot. That's really it from me. No worries. We'll see you next month. Thanks for joining us. See you later.